Welcome to Bond by Numbers, episode 43. Thank you very much for joining us here today. My name is Scott Powell, and I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed co-hosts across the pond in Canada, Jeff Chapman and Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor, a.k.a. the BFG. Gentlemen, gentlemen, how are you? Doing very well. Good. I am doing just fine, drinking my coffee out of my Bond by Numbers mug. Oh, yeah. Sorry, that merch is not yet available. Actually, actually, that merch that actually, merch is available, and we've got ourselves a little contest coming up at the end of this episode, uh, which we'll be doing a little giveaway, and I'll say more about that when we get to the end. So listen carefully. Perfect. Listen carefully for your chance to win some Bond by Numbers merchandise. We're in merch category now, or merch level now. Well... That, that's like DEFCON 4 when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> is that Def right? DEFCON yeah. 4. Like it. Uh, today we're, we're going to do our first soundtrack focus feature and we're going to be looking at a soundtrack that many people within the Bond community know and love. I'm speaking... Goldeneye? Of course. No, not Goldeneye, no. <laughs> but perhaps that's a great one for deconstruction a little bit later. No, of course, I'm speaking of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And this, this is a fantastic score and, you know, in, in prefacing the episode... We just like to say a few a few, a few things like we're, we're not today going to reinvent the wheel here or offer any hot takes on the score. At least we don't think so. We are all here, Josh and Jeff and myself. We're here to celebrate this music and we welcome many of you within the community who feel exactly the same way as us about it. We know how revered Barry's score is for this film. Uh, we know how well discussed and appreciated it is. And we're all stepping up here, I think, boys, as big fans of the film and the music, right? That's right. So, Absolutely. you know, instead of just gushing, though, and sort of fanboying our way through this episode, which we could do, and issuing platitudes for Barry's work, we want to kind of put our appreciation of the score into some historical context. And hopefully, uh, you know, I mean, I learned a lot doing my research for the show. And we, what we're wanting to do here is maybe fill you in on some information about the world or surrounding the score that you, you never knew before. Maybe you exactly. did. Exactly. We're kind of teaching our listeners how to fish. So if mm-hmm. you're new to Bond or right. if you're new to soundtracks or scores or even, you know, a, a genre of music, maybe we can help you branch that out. And uh, maybe this will help you find uh, a, a new love for, a, a, you know, an instrument like the uh, the Moog synthesizer mm-hmm. or, or something like that. So... Yeah, that, that's what we're aiming to do. Absolutely. And not just within the franchise's history, guys, but kind of, I hope today we can talk about just kind of like the, the, a broader history of, of music and musical evolution, because mm-hmm. Barry's orchestration in this score, uh, as you're saying, Jeff, uh, it includes the the Moog synthesizer, which at the time of, of, of filming and at the time of music production was a very new concept a very new construct i should say Mm. and it hadn't really been applied uh in in this way before at least not to this extent and we'll get into the development of that instrument as well okay so we're going to be talking about synth a lot today uh because it it was fresh it was pioneering to be in use at the time 1968-69 and i think i can speak for you my esteemed co-hosts you know in saying that the soundtrack to on her majesty's secret service isn't just a great bond score but it's it's a great film score and and this episode is devoted to it or at least bond by numbers take on it so we hope you enjoy it we thank you for coming along the journey with us and particularly uh we were quite encouraged by the warm response to some social media posts that we put up earlier this week hey jeff yeah, it was uh, it was very uh, it was very nice to see all the comments and uh, all the likes and uh, so it, and 
as much as we were surprised, we weren't surprised because we know how revered this score is. It's just nice to see uh, that our, our, our followers also agree. And uh, it was nice just to sort of have that pat on the back, I guess, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, going into this episode to give us a little uh, pick-me-up. Yeah, for sure. We're glad that you guys are with us on this. And, you know, we're, I guess in a sense, this is a card game where you can see what hands we're playing. Every one of us step up here as fans of the score and fans of the film. When we did our retrospective, this was one of the highest films that we ranked. It is there, isn't it, now among the best of the Bond films, appreciated by legions of fans, which is, is cool. You know, it's, it's had its renaissance and it's kind of, uh, it was for a while the one to sort of pick apart because Lazenby yeah. was the one and only Bond film he did and uh, it was just a little it's kind of a black a sheep, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is a black sheep, but it's a black sheep that has risen to <laughs> the, the top. The yeah, yeah, exactly. And we'll talk about the film, of course, as we go too. So, yeah, I don't know that we need to say much more in uh, in preamble here, but uh, it's it's good to be with you guys again after a few weeks, and I'm really excited about the chat we got coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well. You know, guys, in, in developing notes and research for, for this episode, because we wanted to give our listeners a little bit more than just, you know, three guys talking about the music that they love in the film, which, by the way, uh, that would be a properly good expenditure of time, you know. Yes. There are great podcasts. There are great musical reviews on the score, on the music of Bond that you can go you can go access. Um, there were a couple, of, uh, a couple of reviews, one by James Suttle and one by Mark Richards, both available online with uh, some really nice deep dive information on the score. Um, the James Bond Archives, the, uh, the Tashin book, which uh, we've used and cited before, uh, edited by Paul Dunquin. Um, I also listened to a couple of great podcasts, um, the Tech Stuff podcast, which is one hosted by John Strickland and Joe McCormick. Although I think Joe McCormick, who does his own show with the um, Stuff You Should Know Network, the Things to Blow Your Mind, uh, both of those guys teamed up and did a two-part on history of the Moog and sort of electronic music, which I found really helpful in understanding the physics of the instrumentation and sort of how this works and, and indeed how you know it, it can be applied uh, into popular music. Um, a Deeper Cuts podcast, which is a really great show, one I discovered by doing a bit of research into uh, Wendy Carlos' uh, Switched on Bach, mm. which we'll talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is, that's a cool show too. You guys uh, might like to check that out. Three Canadians, Graham Burke, Shannon Dohar, and Rob Jones, they basically just uh, present albums. They're three pals who present albums that the others listen to that have had some influential part to play in their lives. Right? Oh, that's cool. it's, it's, it's just a nice yeah. little concept and uh, really mm. great discussions there. And they did a lot of good research on the Wendy Carlos piece that is important in the story of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, but most of all, I'd like to point listeners in the direction of an excellent book by John Burlingame, The Music of James Bond. It was published in 2012, but uh, was revised in 2014, I think that's the year, with a chapter on Skyfall. Uh, there might even be one on Spectre now. I'm not entirely sure. I don't have an updated version of the book. Yeah, I've got the 2014 reprint. So John Burlingame's The Music of James Bond. It's a book we know is out there. Burlingame has done a couple of interviews about it within and throughout the Bond community. And he has his own podcast too, uh, 
for Disney called Four Scores, where he interviews composers and features music by composers who worked for the Disney Animation Studios or the, you know, the Nature Studios or Pixar or stuff like that. So that's right. kind of like a Disney gig, I think, that he's got. But he's a music journalist. So the and... Michael Gacchino show? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Randy Newman and... Um... <laughs> Of course. Well, uh, Nick Lenny Smith, you know, he's done a couple of uh, episode interviews with them. But uh, this book is a fantastic book. It is exceptionally well researched and it was really helpful for me as I prepared notes for this program in just sort of ironing out, um, you know, how Barry's work operating on this score wasn't just different to those that came before, but also kind of, um, but was also pioneering in terms of film music and really interesting, really yeah. good stuff. So That's film by I film. Was thinking yeah. about. That's mm -hmm. what I was kind of thinking about. Like, and I don't know if you guys will, just, will discuss this or not, but I want to bring it up just so mm -hmm. that we can kind of have it at the back of our minds. Sure. Mm -hmm. Was on her Majesty's Secret Service, the Bond score that shaped the other Bond scores to come? Because I think I noticed like you see like a transition mm -hmm. of Barry's old kind of sound, which still had some old timey kind of feel to it. Mm -hmm. And how they kind of got more mature and more or less uh, old sounding, old timey sounding. I'm going to use that okay. term again. What do you, uh, what, do you what, what are you thinking of in terms of like, just give me, give me an idea what you mean, like an old timey Barry action. <laughs> do you mean like the, the brassiness of it? Okay. Yeah. So for example, like mm -hmm. even, even in the opening sequence of Hunter Magic Secret Service, when they're yep. fighting on the beach, you have those old timey horn blasts occurring all the mm -hmm. time that are really mm -hmm. jarring almost. Oh, and, and, I get and then, it. And then you have like, uh, but then you, you, the synthesizer slowly takes over, and you're getting less oh. less of that kind of sound. And you're getting more okay. kind of like ominous strings, mm -hmm. you're getting more ominous kind of ambiguous strings. I think it's slowly going. This is kind of the turning point where it's going from an old sound, and we're into more of a more sophisticated, uh, uh, what's more panoramic, more uh, modern. Modern, yeah, exactly. More mm -hmm. modern kind of sound in film, film, in film scoring, and it's a bit more mod. <laughs> yeah, more mod. Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> know, man. Like, I, I, it might be. Yeah, that's a very good observation. Uh, I, I mean, it, who who knows? I would probably tend to agree with Josh on that. It's a very good observation, otherwise, and it makes you think, which is always good. <laughs> uh, but I think Josh, you are onto something. It, it's, I think so. it, it's certainly a pivot point within Barry's career. Um, not not because he went on to become like an electronic composer at all, because mm -hmm. he didn't. But no. the use of and the application of the Moog synthesizer in this film, particularly, did transform. I think. Uh, and open up, I guess is a better way to describe, open up yeah. film music to different soundscapes. And indeed, in a few moments now, when we get going, that's the story we have got to start with. Because what makes this different to other Bond scores, certainly those that came previous, is the the introduction of the electronic music and that element. And I, I think this is a similar sort of theme of what we've mentioned through Bond throughout the, the podcast, uh, is how Bond is a trendsetter. Uh, for film and all the and these kind of types of things, especially, and then if you you could also add it for the score. Whereas James Bond, at this point, everyone knows, everyone's waiting for the films, and it you know kind of sets it sets the bar at this point. So when Josh mentioned that, it made me think like, yeah, another example here again is the score and the use of a brand new instrument to a a, a composer who's not necessarily. Not, 
like he's not he might not be up and up on technology but he decided to try it and it worked very well and but he still kept the score being a berry score mm-hmm. but keeping it mod if we're going to use the term that would have been you know appropriate at the time for being you know fresh and new and hip uh and it worked very well mm-hmm. yeah uh, I, I was going to say too and this is where, where what Jeff was just saying poses another question that I have, and maybe it'll be answered. Because on Her Majesty's Secret Service, because it was kind of like, uh, I guess, a risky production with a new Bond, right. uh, there wasn't really a lot of, I guess, hope for it to do extremely well. So did this provide an environment of experimentation mm. that normally other Bond films would have? Would, would, wouldn't have. Wouldn't have, for yeah. For example, yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if Sean Connery was cast in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Right. Would it have the same score for the yeah, same? Yeah, okay, yes. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I don't think so, Josh. I, I, I agree with you. Yeah, because I agree with you. John Barry himself is quoted as saying that when Connery left the role, and he, of course, was still very loyal to the producers and wanted to do the film, he said that he went out of his way to make this more Bondian than Bondian. He went out of his way to make this score different, bigger, bolder, and newer, because I think exactly yeah. for what you're, what you're hypothesizing, that you know he knew the audience was going to need to have faith in this new Bond, and they might not roll with the story in quite the same way and you know i mean box office returns initial box office returns on majesties would support that it it wasn't a it wasn't an exceptionally lucrative film critics were not in support of george lazenby very much it was the knee-jerk reaction to connery's leaving Uh, we've said on the show before that it would be it would have been nice if uh, lazenby had maybe continued instead of that making that shit decision which i mean he doesn't need us to criticize him for he's had uh, had his whole life to deal with that yeah but you know um i i think that uh yeah it was a little unfortunate but it was probably destined to happen to whoever followed connery regardless of whether he did one film or two But, uh, yeah, I mean, you raise a good question, Josh, and sure. I, I think that's a great segue into the story of this score. Uh, so if, if you guys are happy, um, I'd just like to, to, to kind of shuffle this on into discussing electronic music, the Absolutely. development of the Moog synthesizer mm-hmm. and how Barry implemented it. So as part of this beginning, this intro to the story of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, let's just talk for a minute because electronic music today is passe right i mean that was something of the 80s and i mean we're going back two decades before that so let's just talk let's just have a little chin wag what are some of your favorite songs or artists with electronic music or who perhaps uh are well known for their synthesizing sound I'll start. Uh, so with me and my and my love of music is I always seem to sort of gravitate towards pioneers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter the genre. Uh, it, it, it's I'm always I'm always more fascinated about how people are like I want I hear this or I see this, but I want to do this like i want to change it how can i do this mm-hmm. so that's why i like pioneers of music it doesn't matter if it's punk metal whatever and with electronic music i'm the same so my influences are craft work which are is considered basically yeah, like yeah. the first you know uh-huh. electronic music and the funny thing is i got into craft work way later like almost when i was like 20 or 21 because i had actually started to when i was really into techno when i was like 15 14 in the the mid 90s mm-hmm. uh, i was really listening to which was also very popular at the time i was listening to a lot of sort of Euro- european kind of techno and, and trip up like portishead and i was really into orbital 
And then I found out when I started to read the liner notes of, of CDs, Orbital's biggest uh, influence was Kraftwerk. And I was like, what the hell is Kraftwerk? It sounds like, uh, <laughs> you know what, it sounds like it's that's a trade. Not an, what it, it's a band. So then I was like, oh, okay. And then later, <laughs> later on, yeah, exactly. And, like the German and, version of Cash Craft Dinner. I, yeah, I exactly. Know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like, wow, what is this? Like some kind of random cheese whiz? No. Um, <laughs> but uh, and then you know, then I, I I found out who they were, and then I kind of listened to that, and I was like, wow, this is super weird. At first, I was like, uh, this is just odd. Like, I, this has all been done. But then when I realized, like, wait a second, it's all been done now. That's right. These guys they were doing, doing it. Yeah. Like, there's literally footage of them in 1969, dressed like hippies, but making stuff that sounds like it's from, like, you know, 1981 and, like, the coolest club mm-hmm. in, in London or, or, or in Berlin. And, like, and these guys were just pioneers of, of electronic music. And, again, they were using instruments like Moog synthesizers and different types of, of keyboards and, and organs uh, so that they're an influence for that. Uh, Orbital was probably my biggest. I listened to them a lot. I got yeah. I like I like that track you sent us there last night. The, the box, yeah, man, the that box was cool. Was Very cool. Uh, and so that was one of the first uh, sort of one of the first couple of, of electronic uh, albums I ever got was Insides by Orbital. I, I don't know if any of our fans are fans of Orbital, uh, but uh, they're a very good British uh, uh, techno electronic band, however you want to call them. They've been around for a long time. They do a lot of good stuff. And uh, so that was one of my earlier influences for electronic music. Josh, yeah. oh, sorry, we'll get back, we'll get back to you, Jeff, in a second. No, no, I just want to yeah. pop to Josh. Josh, you, you're a big fan of a group that, I mean, you introduced this group to me, and, and I like the group and the, the lead singer particularly as well. I'm um, talking about Metric. Ooh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Met- Metric uh, do some great work with synth. They Canadian. Do, yeah, Canadian yeah. group, absolutely. Emily Haynes, funny, right? Em- Emily Haynes, the lead singer, yeah. It's kind of funny you're talking about that because... The other day, I finally saw Scott Pilgrim versus the Pilgrim. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, no, I have it. Anyways, uh, they kind of, they've always had that synth sound from the very yeah. beginning. Yeah. Yes. They, they, but Are they a three-piece band? Four-piece. Four-piece, Four? okay. Yeah, because you've got, uh, you got Emily, mm-hmm. uh, you got James, like the guitarist, also a singer. Then you also have their bass guitarist, Joshua. Right. Uh, and then I forget the drummer's name, but there's a drummer. Okay. Indie band, but pretty much also, I guess they're an international band mm-hmm. now as well. They're very yeah. popular in the United States and North America and mm-hmm. Europe as well. So um, cool. they've been around for a while. Metric is great. I love the synth sound in Metric. I also like uh, some of the 80s new wave revival that occurred in the 2000s. Like uh-huh. the, kill- the Killers, they use synth very well. They, oh, they do, uh, I. I was going to say Interpol is another example of that. And yep. then going back into the day, you want, you know, in the where synth was really like New Order, like Joy Division and its use. Oh, yeah. And Depeche and Mode, yeah. Yeah, Depeche Mode for sure. Oh, um, yeah. And also artists, uh, composers like Giorgio Murado. Uh, yeah. Trying to think of another another example. Jeff mentioned Kraftwerk already. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like modern film composers that use it really well, like Mark Brothers Bog. Uh-huh. Uh, well, uh, Hans like, Zimmer, of course. Hans Zimmer, yeah. He's Mother's big Bob, on a like, synth. Uh-huh. Thor Ragnarok soundtrack is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then also another person I was thinking of is uh, the guy known as Junkie XL, Thomas mm. Hulkenberg. He's also a great user of synth. Mad Max Beyond, or not, Beyond Thunderdome. That's not recent. Fury <laughs> Road. Fury Road. Right. Road. Uh, another film composer that does great work, and it's one of my favorite uh, electronic scores, actually, oh, is John, Carp- John Carpenter. Uh, he does oh, great stuff. Fury Goldsmith. 
No, no. He, no. I mean, Goldsmith implemented it wonderfully too. But no, uh, John Carpenter's work for the Halloween films one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. It's just fantastic. Really, really Ooh. great. Oh yes, music. absolutely. Yeah. You're right. Yes. Uh, Halloween. Actually, although it's it's although it's a lesser film. Halloween 3, the one where, like, you know, you buy the mask and it, like, eats into your face until, like, it turns you fucking crazy and all that stuff. It's, it's not a Michael, it's not the Michael Myers slasher, you know, chronology. It's, it's kind of like the offshoot, just a, yeah. it's a standalone within the, the Halloween franchise. That has got some awesome, awesome music. And Carpenter's not alone in composing it. I don't exactly have the other guy's name to hand, but just check out John Carpenter's work on the Halloween scores. It's, it's really good. Um, any favorite particular tracks i've got a couple of favorite tracks with the synth uh synth sound that uh, just kind of difficult for me to shake one of them which i absolutely love and it's got that great opening is mr crowley by ozzy osbourne oh yeah for sure that's a good one yeah i'm loving that (laughs) track Um, Josh, you were talking about um, Joy Division, Depeche Mode a moment ago. Uh, Just Can't oh, Get yeah. Enough Division, by Depeche yeah. Mode. Love yeah. that tune. Yeah. And that's a that's like their very first try. And again, that's very early on New Wave. I, I yes, mean, yeah. Because that's when New Wave was like, because that would be 1981. So again, when you're listening to the music, it's funny. You always got to think like at the beginning of a, a, of a decade or, or the starting of a genre of music, you're still kind of using older equipment so and as as technology goes on you get newer and you get different sounds so when you listen to that with Depeche Mode they're still using like organ. I mean they have synthesizers but you can also hear that they're still using like organs too right so it's kind of interesting where you're like this is kind of weird and it's very repetitive because they didn't have the technology of uh, yet of how they could really sort of like mix it the same as, as later on in in the 80s and in the 90s but it's still a very uh, it's very it's a very important album for uh, for for new wave and electronic music for that the first one for uh, Depeche Mode anyways it's funny just thinking about it I, 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 most of my most of my favorite synth songs, right, or songs, I mean, you know, that that include the synthesizer. I mean, there are songs of my childhood. I did grow up in the 80s, of course. Sure, yeah, of um, course. But, you know, and it's not new wave because I, I don't think you could consider his work with synthesizers new wave. But I love the simplicity of Stevie Wonder's I Just Called to Say I Love You. I, I, that's a great song. Oh, yeah, no, that's that's good. And well, I, yeah. Would you yeah. would you call Stevie... I mean, Stevie Wonder is so influential in other ways. I don't think he was a, a, a synth electronic musician in the first in the first wave, you know? No, but he, the thing is, is that... Because he came from, like, you know, the 60s as, you know, the, the Wonder Kid. He was, like, 12 or 13. He could play the harmonica and he could play the keyboard and the piano. And so, like, he just... As, as music and as... Uh, you know the style of music that he did progressed the technology got better and better right so he mm-hmm. probably played like a, a piano and then he played like a Hammond organ and then he I think he and then the other one he played he was famous for playing a clavinet too which and that kind of stuff so and, and as it goes I think and you know those the stuff he did in the early 80s that we're pretty familiar with I I don't think it was a moog but it was more of those kind of like synthesizers but he, he he's definitely known for using a lot of synth and it's all very catchy stuff but he's one of those people that kind of as much as he's known from Motown uh, he's one of those 60s musicians that 
actually did a lot of good work in the 80s, which you don't hear a lot about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's usually... It's true, uh, isn't it? It is true, yeah. <laughs> You're right. Another uh, recommendation I have is... Yeah. Uh, the main theme for the uh, movie Dread, that uh, mm. way better remake uh, from the earlier special Stallone movie mm -hmm. with uh, Carl Urban, directed by uh, by Pete Travis and written by and produced by Alex Garland. Mm -hmm. uh, Garland's well known for producing a lot of really good sci-fi films like Annihilation, for example, with Natalie mm -hmm. Portman. Uh, anyways, uh, the composer oh, for yeah. that movie, Paul Leonard Morgan, his theme for Dread oh, is an amazing, amazing layering of like this really kind of like futuristic like synth sound mm -hmm. uh, on top of each other and building and building as it gets with, with the beat that starts to develop all the way through mm -hmm. and it's just a fantastic piece of music and really fits the movie as well well go watch that movie because like one of the best sci-fi movies made in years and uh it's nothing like the that mm -hmm. awful uh stallone movie made like in the 96 or 97 or whatever how awful is that is that bad i don't i don't remember oh, it so it must be pretty, really bad isn't it pretty pretty bad yeah, All what right. I love about it is Carl Urban was such a stickler for the original comic book where mm -hmm. Drudge Dredd never takes his yeah. helmet off, ever. Movie. He didn't need to. And he didn't need yeah. to. It was all his yeah. lower face expressions, like his mouth and his mannerisms, you know what I mean? Right, okay. So a yeah. bit like a Mandalorian. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Actually, very yeah. much. Except, okay. except like the bottom of his face, kind of like Batman, I guess you could say. All right, yeah. so uh, a Batmalorian. A Batmalorian, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Paul Leonard Morgan, great... Film, uh, film music for uh, Dread. I've already mm. already mentioned Mother's Bow, and I've also mentioned mm -hmm. uh, Metric. And the reason why I mentioned Metric and Scott Pilgrim is because mm -hmm. there's a, a character in there that's based off Emily Haynes, and mm -hmm. she actually does a cover right. of, of a Metric song. That was Brie Larson's character. Mm -hmm. She does cool. a cover of a Metric song in there, Black Sheep. There was an nice. argument online I was reading about that some people think that um, she does a better job with the song Black Sheep than Emily Haynes did. <laughs> oh, really? It's a big argument, but then someone said, well, actually, Emily Haynes, it posted a link. She actually said that, like, I never liked playing that song, and I think three was better mm. than that song than I was. So, <laughs> there you yeah. go. So you, well, you can't argue when the singer says, I think that was better covered than my own original, so. No, I guess you can't. And you know something else you can't argue with, guys. I mean, here, just through this little chat here, it, it, it's quite clear, isn't it, that um, whatever side of the fence you fall on, the the side of, yeah, I like electronic music or, nah, it's not my thing, it's uh, it's here to stay. And it, yeah. it has influenced not just film, as Josh, took, you know, is explaining to us here, but... Auto-tune. Oh, man, like everything, uh. right? Like, you can't, you can't help now, but but be influenced by electronics and music. And What's that band that sings that song about owls? Oh, Owl's, you, you Owl, Owl City. No, no, I know. I think you mean Owl City. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the band's oh, name. God. Yeah, they did Firefly. They think about Firefly. Oh, that's right, Owl City. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I take that's it. I take it you're not a fan. Josh, yeah, remember at HMV really. when that would come on, I would just flip out. Yeah, Jeff and I used to work at HMV <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, you don't like that. Oh, well, okay. If you worked at HMV, guys, you will know because I don't think you would have sold many of these in the 90s or the two, early 2000s. Uh, the Thompson Twins, Doctor Doctor. How, oh, how's, that, yeah. how's that for an electronic single? <laughs> <There you go. laughs> That's a good one, too. Another one I was thinking of, too, is uh, I think it was version 2.0. Mm -hmm. uh, Garbage went full electronic like mm. uh, with, that, with that album, and they've always had a really good synth sound as well. And so has Beck, right? Yeah, Beck. Uh, even the pumpkins went in that direction at one point. I think that's, yeah, when, they, that's, that's, that's when they fell apart, though. <laughs> it's... And, and Joy Division. You were mentioning Joy Division because Joy Division is one of my favorite bands of all time. Warsaw. And it's, it's fun. Well, exactly. They started off as Warsaw. They turned into Joy Division. And then they were kind of one of the first bands that were of that post-punk to then sort of 
switched to electronic equipment like electronic drum sets mm -hmm. and because and they're from Manchester and apparently once they kind of did that a lot of the other bands kind of followed suit and that's where you get a lot of those bands if you ever look at sort of the um, the history uh, of, of post-punk turning into new wave and just ended up being Britpop uh, of the early 80s a lot of those bands started off as punk bands yeah post-punk bands between and post-punk is like that that sort of like punk's sound between like 77 and 79 80 and then like Susie and the Banshees Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because then you get a lot of these bands that kind of then because everyone saw it was going towards sort of that uh, that poppier style, but they they kind of it was like a transition. So you hear it to go from sharper sounds and, and real drum kits to yeah. like synthesizers and electronic drums, and then you get that Brit sort of European style of of, of new wave sound and, and synthesizers that kind of stuff so joy division is very important in, in that in that conversation as well obviously you, you mentioned how and like new order because they turned into new order that's my yeah reason. so guys what i'd like to do now if you'll indulge me and yes. indeed um i hope that uh, listeners find this stuff interesting is just tell a little bit about the story leading up to the production and the writing of On Her Majesty's Secret Service by John Barry. This is kind of like a short history of the Moog synthesizer, along with information on those really important figures that influenced Barry and other musicians of his time. Then we'll talk about the soundtrack, and I guess we'll, uh, we'll not go necessarily cue by cue, but we'll definitely talk about our highlights and pick apart and share some of the music with our audience, eh? Ooh. Take it away, boys. By 1969, Barry had already won three Oscars, two for Born Free and one for The Lion in Winter. He had also collaborated earlier that year on Midnight Cowboy, which was in the process of becoming a really popular ah. soundtrack. He was a rising star, definitely at the top of his game. And of course, he already had five Bond scores behind him, right? Now, others were working on ideas for electronics, but Moog had become, Bob, Robert Moog had become known for the development of analog physical circuitry synthesizers before anyone else. So it's incorrect, I think, of us to say Moog was the only guy who was doing this type of work. He's no, the he only was... guy that created this, but his name has become synonymous with the analog synthesizer. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like when I, I like, I, I say Q-tip, but it's not. Uh -huh. It's like a cotton swab. It's because it, now his name is synonymous with synthesizer. Mm -hmm. and it's not. It wasn't. He did. He didn't want to use the term synthesizer. He wanted to use a different term at first. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> in in analog physical circuitry synth, electronic components actually make vibrations, as opposed to what you get with digital, where the numbers which are stored drawn from a memory and are then converted into sound waves by a processor when a button's pushed, right? So Moog is dealing with analog physical circuitry creating vibrations of sound, whereas digital synthesizers and digital sound is coded numbers stored in memory, which when you push a button is retrieved from said memory and by through the, the processing filter, that's how the sound is created, right? I mean, that, that's roughly the difference between digital and analog. Okay, so we're talking about pioneering stuff using cables, cords, and circuitry. Not... I saw that video, the history of the Moog, and how mm -hmm. there were just, listeners can just imagine, like, this, like, 
this wooden like frame with like uh mm -hmm. and all these little not like all these little nodules these little like uh inserts and wires going everywhere crisscrossing all over the place it's like immensely huge it and is it's it's a huge device just yeah. to produce like a sound that today you know that we could put on like a synthesizer you know what i mean mm -hmm. like it's, it's it's wild to think about it is yeah. very crazy i've got two little synthesizers down in my kids play boxes you know and they're just like little battery operated things that can can do can do easier much more than what this thing could do you know yes. but um takes up anyway. space too i guess ah very much so uh <laughs> quite quite yeah <laughs> So let's talk a guy, a guys about Robert Moog, okay? He was born in Queens, 1934, and interested in electronics as a kid, which will not come as any surprise. Uh, he was interested in using electronics to make music, but he wasn't a musician himself, and I don't think he ever really wanted to become an electronic musician, but he really enjoyed the idea of developing the instruments that could do that for, for performers, you know? So it was always the physics, electronics side of things that interested him, and he was interested in electronic sound, obviously, um, but he wasn't himself wanting to go, you know, become a star through the music, if that makes any sense to you, you know? He was the engineer behind it. Yes. Um, Moog's early work, interestingly enough, was on theremins. And although there is a classical repertoire for theremins, and it was used in a lot of film scores, it became synonymous with sort of science fiction and spookiness, you know? Yeah. Um, yes. Bernard Herrmann particularly wrote a score for The Day the Earth Stood Still, which, oh, I, yeah. which I think really cemented that sort of wah, wah, wah sound, <laughs> you know, for like the yeah. space aliens and shit. And, but, you know... The best film score to use the theremin for my money is Miklos Roja's score for Spellbound, the Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. um, yes. That's that score, by the way, one of my top ten scores. Check it out uh, if if you haven't before. It is awesome. But generally, the theremin's a device that produces sound through the interference of sound waves. Right? You've got two antennas jutting one vertically, one horizontally from uh, like a rectangular box, essentially, and you have like this invisible ninety degree space to play with. Right? So the antenna rely on radio waves around them. So when you move your hands and interfere with them, the notes and the tones change, essentially. Now I was really lucky to have worked with theremins when I worked as a science educator at Science East in Fredericton um, during my last year before moving to Scotland. Yeah, so a big shout out to Michael Edwards and the crew back in Fredericton uh, who keep doing awesome work with hands-on science and kids. Anyway, um, a theremin, I remember Michael got a theremin the last year or two I was there and I was quite fortunate enough to learn how to, to use it and to operate it. And we would take it on the road with us and do demos and stuff, right? And an awesome, awesome instrument. But, but you know, very limited in terms of what sound you're going to get out of it. Right. Yes, you could get different pitches. And as I say, there is a classical repertoire for theremins. If you, if you want to look into concertos and stuff, there are some that are written and there are professional theremin players who are musicians. But you're still limited to you know, different variations on that same sort of wah, 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 like, yeah. you know, sound, right? Um and so if you don't like that sound, you're probably not going to like the theremin. But it was this instrument that Moog did his early work on, okay? He built his first theremin as a teenager. And by 19, he had started a business selling them and kits to build them. Uh, he and his father started the R.A. Moog Company. College and university followed for him, and he was studying physical engineering. So what we've got is Moog growing up 
working with his dad on this business, fascinated with electronic sound. He works with theremins and he goes to university. And that's when, I guess, like a lot of people, life starts kind of speeding up and, you know, you meet so-and-so and this leads you on. As Robert Frost would say, way leads on to way. Mm-hmm. And we've got him meeting this guy, Walter Sear, in 1963, who's a tuba manufacturer. He encourages him to this uh, music association gathering of other people like himself interested in, um, you know, experimental music and whatnot. And at that gathering, he meets Herb Deutsch. Deutsch was part of the experimental music movement, and the two of them got really pally, and they shared enthusiasm for building a device specifically for creating new sounds for music. Now, Moog moved from here to create a shop near Ithaca in New York, and he started experimenting with silicon transistors as basic components for new sounds. I do not pretend or profess, okay, guys, to understand the physics of all of this, but it <laughs> might, I think it might be worth trying to stumble through a little bit of it about transistor technology, simply because it's so important, or if you pardon the pun, instrumental to how this instrument came about, okay? It, man, yeah. It, it just looks so like complicated. Uh, I like how it sounds. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's right. Unlike how it sounds. It sounds so smooth and soft, doesn't yeah. it? Well, silicon transistors were a bit of a game changer in electronics because they produced less heat and they took up less space than vacuum tubes. Generally speaking, that that's that's you know for for proles like myself, that's that, that's the takeaway. All right, silicon transistors were game changers in electronics generally, not musical electronics, but just generally in the world of electronics because they produced less heat and took up less space in vacuum tubes. So if you wanted before to have an electronic device uh, before transistors, it was going to have to be big. It was going to be unwieldy. It was going to produce a lot of heat, right? compared to those with newer tech transistors. Moog started looking at transistors to be the basis for circuitry. And by changing the voltage in various circuits before sending signals out to a loudspeaker, he discovered that you could actually alter pitch. So roughly speaking, the increase in one volt would give an increase in one octave in pitch. He named his first machine after the family name, the Moog. Okay? Analog synths needed tuned, just like physical instruments, so that's why, Josh, when you talk about all the knobs and all of the dials and things on the Moog, you're, you've got tuning adjustments, right? Which tell the connectors how to send signals to the analog board, and that in turn plays the sound at the pitch and the effect that the musician wants. Right. Now, there is an excellent documentary, which I'd be remiss if we didn't mention, uh, and it's Hans Fjellstad's documentary Moog from 2004. It is really cool. It's a cheap download. It's really informative. It's got great interviews with Moog himself and people who were kind of you know helping him in the in uh, in the early days. There is a lot more to all of this stuff, obviously, than what I'm sharing with you now. And it is all very fascinating. A lot of it is kind of over my head because I lack the nomenclature. It's over my head. <laughs> well, yeah, I lack I lack the the nomenclature and yes. and the, the the physical science to to kind of negotiate all of the demos and stuff like that. Like I can see, okay, plug plug this into here, turn turn that to the left, turn, turn that to the left. <laughs> That's turn that right. To the yeah. Right, like I I can 11. see that yeah. stuff, but I you know, aside from what I shared with you. Um, the electronics of it are, are beyond me, but it is really interesting. And I, I guess the reason I wanted to share any of that is because the impact of electronics and music today is is undeniable and it is all yes. around us. So if any millennials yes. or younger listeners 
to, to what we're saying here find it quite boring or dull. And it's not just my delivery of it, which it certainly could be. Without guys like <laughs> Moog, you'd probably have nothing to listen to right now. <laughs> That's totally true. No, I mean, that's that's me serving up a sweeping well, generalization uh, for young <laughs> listeners, but there it is, right? It's done. I think with young listeners, because there's so many free, like, synthesizer apps and, and electronic music apps that are free to download, uh, whether you have an Android or an Apple phone. If you ever look, just type, like, you know, synth or keyboard mm-hmm. apps, like, games on available that are free, yeah. and the quality of them are actually pretty good. I so, don't doubt yeah. I don't you know, it. so it's funny because it's it's all over the place. And if someone wants to start, a lot of people can make actually more or less decent quality mm-hmm. stuff, even with just a free app on their phone now. So, and again, all that comes from, you know, the, this kind of synthesized stuff. This is where it all came from. So, I think there's probably a lot of people that are are younger that actually can, are just very lucky that they can literally just click download on a free app and then start to just noodle away on their phone when mm-hmm. they're waiting for the their popcorn to get out of the out of the microwave. Yeah, out of the microwave. Imagine if they had apps back in 1969, you know, or, or yeah. during the world mm-hmm. of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. Bond didn't. Bond wouldn't have have needed to like uh, have a whole crane set up to get. get <laughs> well, that's what I was gonna <laughs> that's say. Right. Yeah, block, yeah exactly. block breaking kit come up to him. Right? Uh, <laughs> also, just, I think just, that that same crane. App. <laughs> well, that that same crane would also be the roadie for the Moog. Uh, Moog. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It would need to be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, that uh, Intel guy that he had, I guess his uh, his own personal surveillance guy was working yeah. for him. He looks like a roadie, so I mean. <laughs> the the bleach blonde Michael Sheen, that's what he looks like. <laughs> exactly. I remember when you said that on the show, too. Yeah, but anyway. Michael Sheen is definitely a, a, a good, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Moog produced the first units for sale in 1964, and there were yeah. several musicians and groups who were keen to experiment, but these things couldn't be mass manufactured. Oh. Like, they were basically building one per sale per per yeah. effort, if that makes any, you know what I mean? Uh, now, Jeff, Rick Wakeman, now, I mean, Rick Wakeman, maybe later on, after the Barry score into the early 70s, yes. but... George Harrison no, was an no. early purchaser of this. You, you got anything you want to share on that? Yeah, now uh, Wakeman, he was with Yes. Was he not, Jeff? That's correct. Yeah, he was. And then he branched out into a solo, but yes, he was with Yes. So for people that were able to, to get their hands on a Moog, you'd have to be a somebody. And so obviously in the late 60s, the Beatles were somebody. George yeah. Harrison yeah. was lucky, lucky enough uh, to be as far as what my what, what I'm reading here is that he was the 95th uh, person to purchase a, a Moog synthesizer, and uh, and what year did he, he buy that in? So I believe he purchased it. Uh, well, it, the album that he was noodling on was in 1969. He was recording it in 68, 69. Okay. So I'm thinking he probably bought it in 68. Right, and it probably took three months to get into his house. <laughs> That's right, another two to set up. <laughs> uh, and another two, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, when we when so, we come to talk about Wendy Carlos in a few moments, Jeff, you can describe the cover album, which <laughs> I think, or the album cover rather. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, you were saying. No, no, that I was. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. Um, so George Harrison, I don't know a lot of people know about people know about his solo solo music but i don't know if a lot of people know that he was actually the the beatle with the first solo album he actually had two during when the beatles were still uh together and um, in fact his his third solo album was 
All Things Must Pass in 1970. Mm. Uh, and, I, and so his second album was called Electronic Sound, which was literally him uh, farting around on a moog. Cool. <laughs> it's just, it, I mean, honestly, uh, it's basically, it literally just sounds like someone who just got one and, and then they plugged it in and then they started playing with all the knobs. Uh, but however, <laughs> it's just probably and, exactly and, and, what it was. And, and, and to be honest, as, as, and I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that because at this time, I mean, you know, he knows how to play the keyboard. I mean, he's obviously an accomplished musician. We all know that at this point, but it, it, it's a new it's a new instrument, and he's probably he just probably, you know, hit record on his reel to reel, and uh, and he he just started going with it, and uh, it is it's very interesting the sound that comes out of it, and you can definitely see where a lot of bands in the like it even sounds like at one point it sounds like the stuff you would have heard, um, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 years later when this that style of sound was was you know, the new thing, the, the, the fresh, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the fresh sound, whether it be like a craft work, a Depeche mode, all those types of bands. Um, so you can definitely see where it comes from. Now, again, uh, it wasn't that the album was called electronic sound. It came out in 1969, uh, on the, the label, it was called Zapple, which is kind of like an offshoot of Apple records. And, uh, Frank Zappa. No, it was, well, it was just called, well, yeah, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, so it was it was just George Harrison, and he was just trying, he was playing around with it. And they, he did end up using, the Beatles were one of the first bands to actually use uh, a Moog uh, synthesizer. Um, and they used what it song? on, um, it was uh, on Abbey Road, and I think what they said is it was, uh, where was it here? Uh, it wasn't Octopus's Garden. It was oh, here comes the sun because uh, Maxwell Silver Hammer, hmm. and uh, and then they also mentioned other bands like the Stones and the Doors too. But that would have been yeah. So Doors again, definitely for sure. Um, Ray Manzarek, right? I'm sure he knew how to put. Oh yeah. A Vogue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But well, um, eh, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say. Uh, no, you finish up your bit on Harrison. Oh no. I was just going to say that uh, Harrison, uh, he had recorded in two different times. Now, there is a bit of conjecture here where apparently, there, like, the album, it was really weird, okay? Again, it was, like, literally two two tracks, and it was one on one side, one on the other for the record. There's some conjecture here saying that one of the tracks was actually um, a... Uh, uh, his name is Bernie Krause, and so basically uh, he tried to sue Harrison because he said that he recorded him doing that without his knowledge. So there's people like they say that it was actually him, not George Harrison, because if you listen to that track, you're like, well, it does sound a lot better than the first track. So maybe <laughs> it is the guy who knows what he's doing with the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it, the, the important thing with, with electronic sound is is just sort of the groundbreakingness. And, and when you listen to it, where you can see where it's going. Like you could just kind of – you could just picture people that are musicians that are good, like keyboardists, piano players, and just kind of be like, oh. Mm-hmm. You this know? is and what we can do. Yeah. This is what we can do. And I can absolutely see those – the German musicians that – were to be craft work be like oh you know 
this I can I can do this I, I can see what, you know and so this that's why this album was mm-hmm. uh, important and again they're not stressing when you listen to it that it's and the, uh, one review said it's not called electronic music because that would be a stretch it's definitely electronic sound <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I think that's like, fair I think that's yeah, fair perhaps perhaps Jeff Josh the first electronic album was Wendy Carlos's Switched on Bach mm, and yes. if if you want to chat for a few moments now about her uh, I mean Harrison might have been the 95th person to buy one of these things and have it shipped to his house but uh, Carlos is definitely responsible for making some downright explosive contributions to electronic music because oh yes she was not just a pioneer in terms of electronic sound she was a contemporary of bob moog and noteworthy for this album switched on bach born in 1939 in rhode island she studied like bog uh, like moog sorry uh, Bach didn't study physics. Maybe he did. Fuck, who knows? Maybe he did. Church <laughs> organs are not easy to get around, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Carlos studied physics and music at Brown University before moving to New York City in 1962 to study composition at Columbia. And there she collaborated with technicians and other musicians within the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center. I wanted to get that right. She met and worked with Bob Moog. In 1968, she produced the album Switched on Bach, uh, a mm. fully electronic interpretation of several classical pieces by J.S. Bach and played through a Moog synth. Now, Jeff, you and I have got this album, and yes. the reason I asked you to say something about the album cover is because you got this dude that's dressed up like Bach standing quite awkwardly yeah. in front of the entire Moog synth board, and it is a yes. massive space-like <laughs> capsule-esque sort of device, right? Yeah, uh, it's, it's so a great. It's, it's a great, a great cover. Yeah, it's a classic <laughs> cover. Well, if if we believe Carlos, and there's really absolutely no reason not to, each note that you hear on this album needed to be programmed into the machine for playing and the project the, the project rather took over 1000 hours up yeah. acro- across 5 months to produce wow. so note by note carlos yes. and, and and her co-producer Rachel Elkin they worked tirelessly man over modulators and tunings and volumes and pitches and Carlos yeah. deliberately made an effort to create something listenable, you know, something pleasurable, not just here's some bleepy bloppy bloopies, but <laughs> she, she wanted this to be an album you could listen to. And I think maybe that Harmonious. is a key. She wanted to make yeah. it like, like uh, yeah. a ple- pleasant to the ear and not she, just like some weird. Not exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was, it was pleasing yeah. to the ear because Switched On Bach reached number 10 on the Billboard chart. It won three Grammys and was the best best-selling classical album for the years 1969 to 72 inclusive. Uh, It was certified platinum as well. So she did an absolute number on this project. And I I would say, now I don't have stats or figures on this, but I would say she also managed to introduce classical music to a new audience as well. I I would agree with you. Uh, One thing I I wanted to mention mention is that if if you think about uh, Bach, I I, I love the harpsichord. I think it's a great instrument. I like how, and one one reason I like it is uh, it kind of has that air of... of, Upper, upper class uh, for the for the time for what when the instrument was in its infancy like back in the day when Bach was around and mm-hmm. then also there was a resurgence with the psychedelic sound mm-hmm. in the 60s which again you can argue with 
uh, with with folk music and the psychedelic music of the of the 1960s is that they they went and, and tried to use you know all these different types of, of instruments so again you have the moog being created and the harpsichord and the hammond organ all these different types of like keyboards and pianos and and sort of how do we use these instruments and and, and, and literally switching them on like Deep Purple was known for, you know, having a Hammond organ and plugging it into like a, a bass amp and turning up the reverb and making it. And sometimes you mm -hmm. couldn't tell, is that a is that a bass guitar or is that a keyboard? And and so that's why it's what's interesting and to get back to what I was trying to say about uh, the harpsichord uh, is if you look at this and, and the uh, how laborious it is to, to with the notes, like you were saying, think about how fast a harpsichord is played. Okay, yeah. and all those mm -hmm. little notes and the preciseness, and she's trying to do the Brandenburg Concerto and all this kind of stuff with a a Moog synthesizer. So think think how hard that would have to be to to replicate. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to yeah. mention that all That's, those cross wires. Well, mm -hmm. I just, yeah, exactly. I just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's also I'm, I'm very happy. Obviously, not that I was there, I had, and I didn't vote for them to get a, a Grammy or anything. But I'm, I'm very happy to see that at least uh, it was uh, revered by its peers because mm -hmm. of the the hard work that was put into it. Totally. And one of and one <laughs> if, of those if, figures. If Jeff, sorry, Josh. What are you can say. I was gonna say if, if people like Jeff voted for the Grammys, there would be a, the Grammys would ha would be a lot uh, better in my opinion. <laughs> oh, that's that's a nice compliment. There you go. <laughs> but to, to say what you were saying, Josh, uh, sorry, um, Scott, about uh, bringing people, it probably brought uh, like a sort of a, another generation into classical music. I think what you were saying um, was that I, I believe it's true. And especially if you look at when it won those Grammys, uh, Moog Synthesizer was very popular. And if you go to 72, you look at Clockwork Orange, which mm -hmm. uh, Wendy Carlos also uh, had a version of the of the score oh, as well the uh, right? funeral for, for uh, queen mary that well, was, there was uh, actually that was wendy carlos uh well there was actually a, a whole second sort of version of the clockwork orange uh score that is actually oh, not in the actual score. score but she she did like her own version of it okay well, there's yeah, well, two, yeah. Well, Kubrick, Kubrick is one of these peers that was really impressed yeah. by Carlos's work with Switched on Bach and got Carlos to score and uh, to score Clockwork Orange and later The Shining as well. Oh, and okay, so, wow. So, and you so, got, so she did the Bartok then? Yeah, that's right. And the, oh, wow. the Beethoven and the 1812 Overture for Clockwork, yep. all of that stuff was Wendy Carlos, yeah. Cool. And because I always love that opening of Clockwork yeah. Orange, the, uh -huh. the funeral uh -huh. for yeah. Queen Mary, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that, oh, that, yeah, that's a fantastic piece of music, and it's just so haunting. But mm. uh, and yeah, her work for now that I know that 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 was her, her work for The Shining was incredible. Yeah, and yeah, it was good. I, I had one of those like epiphanies. So I was like, oh my god, that's who. Because then I remember when I found out when I when I bought the Switch on Bach, I listened to it. I was like, this sounds a lot like Clockwork Orange, and then I was like, mm -hmm. oh. It's That's the why. same person. That's like, oh <laughs> yeah. my god! Did she have anything to do with Barry Lyndon, or was that all pure classical? That I don't know. No, she sure. had nothing to do with Barry Lyndon. Okay. Well, I don't think so. I don't think Underrated so. Underrated Kubrick film, in my personal opinion. I'm just saying yeah. that up there. Yeah, you've um, always been a champion of Barry Lyndon. Yeah, yeah it's very I, good. Every I time I go score. back to watch it, it's like a magical. I, it's just like it's just like this blanket that falls on top of you. Those That's... who haven't seen it, go watch Barry Lyndon. Yeah, the camera yeah. work and just the lighting style, making it capture that period. It's so well done. Uh, not the great acting, but uh, there is some great scenes in the movie and some great performances too hmm. that, that really sneak up on you. Anyways, I, I was just I just wanted to mention Scott that yeah I can see that 
uh, Wendy Carlos and and the switch on Bach would have probably turned a lot of people on onto the uh, the the Moog uh, synthesizer and that sound, and it, it was very important. So, uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> Carlos and Moog obviously are two people we had to talk about because we're getting yes. close now. We're getting close now to talking about the score. Okay, so if you've been yeah. if you're just you know you're kind of waiting for us to get to the Bond stuff, it's coming. It's coming. But coming. I just yes. I just think that we're I think we gotta lay the foundations of who you yes. know how who this instrument is because it has influenced so very much. Now there's one so other guy. Oh, okay. I was going to say because how do we get Wendy Car- Wendy Carlos and Bob Moog, and then all of a sudden getting to John Barry using that mm. kind of style? Barry was um, was really friendly with a lot of musicians, so there's, there's you know he he would certainly have been aware of this instrument, and he did yeah. use it. He used it for the main titles um, of the Lion in Winter. Uh, but only right. only marginally, only little bits. Certainly he didn't use it the way he did in this score. But one of the guys that we need to talk about as well, because he's the producer of the album, was Phil Ramone. Now, Phil Ramone, born in South Africa in 1934, grew up in New York City, was himself a child prodigy, played violin at a really early age. He trained at Juilliard in the late 40s, and he had opened up his own studio before his 20th birthday. So let's think about Phil Ramone opening up his own studio before his 20th birthday. Bob Moog building theremins and opening his business before he was 19. I got a question for you guys. Like, what have you done with your lives, guys? Well, this this is one of those cases where you're like, Jeez, okay. <laughs> no, nothing well, to make you feel podcast. inadequate. <laughs> I just do a podcast to like celebrate people that do stuff that I don't, right? <laughs> I, right. I, li- I live by right. sleep through yeah. these people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, Phil Ramone is a great and very well respected music producer. Until I looked into Any him, relation I, to the Ramones, uh, I have not. No, I mean he's South African, <laughs> Phil Ramone. Oh. But he grew up in New York, though. No relation to the Ramones, okay? okay? At least not that I'm aware of. If there is any relation, it wouldn't be by name, I don't think, because uh, Joey Ramone wasn't born a Ramone, was he? No. Anyway, Phil Ramone, born in South Africa, blah, 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 legendary producer. Okay, in 1959, he formed A&R Records, A&R Recording, I should say. Oh, um, yeah. oh wow, okay. Now they, he... they produced the uh, Tomorrow Never Die soundtrack. Yes, and they produce much more than that, as you'll come to see but in a moment. bringing it back to Bond, though, right? Bringing it back to Bond, uh, I was a little ashamed not to know very much about this guy at all, because even if you're not, uh, like you, Jeff, you know, if you're not, and I'm not, really well-versed in, like, the history of music production and these great acts from the 60s and 70s, you still think you're going to pick shit up as you get older, right? <laughs> and I've, pick, I've picked up a lot of stuff, but I had no idea how, how important Phil Ramone was in the sound of so many huge musicians like John Coltrane, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Frank Sinatra, Billy Joel, Elton John, Burt Baccarat, Quincy Jones, Bono, Paul McCartney, B.B. King, Pavarotti, Stevie Wonder, Carly Simon, bada, 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 goes on and on and on. He has won 14 Grammys. He's been nominated for 34. And it was he who Barry worked with to assemble the soundtrack to Midnight Cowboy. And Uh Phil Ramone produces On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So we're finally there. Okay, we're finally there. Okay, so this this is starting to make sense. Yeah, it's all coming together. Okay, Uh, that that makes that makes a lot of sense now. Excellent. Information on the soundtrack then. 
In explaining the need to help the transition from Sean Connery to George Lesenby, Barry said the following, quote, What I did was to overemphasize everything that I'd done in the first few movies, just go over the top and try and make the soundtrack strong, to do Bondian beyond Bondian. Okay, that, that's so support, what Barry so support says. Work to make people forget that Sean Connery is not there. Mm -hmm, that's right. Lazenby suggested during the production to use Blood, Sweat and Tears for the title song, but it wasn't taken seriously. Neither was using the title of the film in the song. Peter Hunt knew <laughs> instinctively that it would have to be some kind of a march or some kind of an instrumental, and it was mm -hmm. agreed that John Barry would go instrumental for the title and write a song for use elsewhere in the film. Now, years later, I found this interesting, and this is straight from Berlingham's book, um, I didn't know this, but Leslie Brickus, who was a lyricist for Goldfinger and for You Only Live Twice, as well yep. as a swathe of other films and stage songs, uh, worked a lot with John Williams, too, uh, claimed, Brickus claimed to have written a properly good lyric for On Her Majesty's Secret Service, including that title, but Barry couldn't recall it at all. So I, I wonder what, where the truth lies there with that one. <laughs> anyway... For the on main... her majesty's <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't just want to say you could put that into a song you know like well Brickus well, said I, he did I guess you never know I mean mm -hmm. you, Brickus was was very good so mm -hmm. you know what he might have he might have done it anyway for, for... It, it doesn't exist does it like the, an off recording or something of it or no 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 it's it's truly like it never came to musical treatment but uh... the, the lyrics were written apparently okay well for the main title the Moog synth tambourine and electric bass combined to provide the rhythm, you know, beneath a fairly serious brass fanfare melody. Barry employed plunger mutes to establish that Bondian sound. You were talking oh, about yeah. it earlier, Josh, you know, the, yes. the, that sort of wah, wah, you get with the horns, that, that very Bondian sound. That's the plunger that mute that's stuck in the That whole fight on the beach, the like when, uh -huh. you know, like you have like the dun 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 like, like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's that old-timey kind of... Yeah. It's something you hear like in Thunderball or like in Goldfinger or something like that. Mm -hmm. Barry had used the Moog before. He had used it uh, in Midnight Cowboy earlier that year just as a very light sort of cue, not, a, not extended at all, not an extensive use. And he used it in the main title of The Lion of Winter. And when yes. I read that, I went back and listened to it and you can hear it clear as day. Now, now... Like, I think I know what part it is. It's at the very beginning where it goes, and then and then you get the main uh, motive, right? <laughs> Who needs an iPod? Josh, keep going. Yeah, it goes. Yeah. Am I right or not? Or are you just making fun of me now? Oh, I am making fun of you, but I think you're right. <laughs> okay, cool. Awesome. I don't know, but I'm definitely. Just go, go, to YouTube, <laughs> go to YouTube, look up the line in winter opening titles, and you'll see exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, you will. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Oh, here. Here, though, in this film, Barry's use of the Moog is predominant, and it is throughout the score. It isn't hidden, it's truly featured, and I think that's what makes this so different, is that in yes. Majesties, he features it as an instrument. Uh, the film's premiere, in fact, in 1969, marked the very first time that the synthesizer was showcased by a major film so prominently. And what's remarkable isn't so much that it's there, but the fact that it isn't overdubbed, it's not it's not yeah, backgrounded exactly. it was exactly. fully integrated into the orchestra and this was just simply not done before mm -hmm. it was not easy uh in his book burlingham writes that its use wasn't just trendy that it was groundbreaking and he, i think mm -hmm. he's, he's correct barry informed ramon that he wanted the moog to be used extensively throughout the film and 
most importantly, playing live with the orchestra. Now, that had never been done before. Wow. Ramon did not know how it could be done, so he contacted yeah. Bob Moog. Bob Moog wow. told him three keyboards and three separate sets of oscillators would be nearly enough to work, as that yeah. would that would give the instrument close to, or as close to, an 88-key function oh, you know that you yeah. get with a piano yeah. as possible so you'd be as close as you could get at the time of performing this thing as a piano with three sets of oscillators and three sets right. of keyboards okay uh so what did john barry do well he brought ramon to london he gave him three weeks to experiment with the equipment and to program what was needed and it was it's really cool to to read ramon's kind of relation or relating this story because he was basically programming as Barry was writing, you know, trying to figure out how he would do this as this new thing came off the printing press, right? Here's another sheet. How am I going to do this? What am I supposed to do with that? Anyway, recording of the score began at Cinatelli Studios in London in late September of 19, of 1969, and John Richards was the mixing engineer. John mm. Richards' first credit was on You Only Live Twice, and that was also Phil Ramone's producing. So I'm thinking John Richards was a friend of Ramon's or a guy who he knew in the music business and he pulled alongside with him for production. Mm -hmm. But what's really curious about Richards is that he doesn't have a credit for his work on this soundtrack. Interesting. I checked it out. Uh, there's no IMDb credit, at least. Uh, so which can which, which does happen every now and then. Of course I mean. it does. Yeah, it does. But yeah, sure. in, in any case, Richards went on to record or mix over 225 film scores. And when I tell you that he worked with a ridiculous number of producers and musicians, I mean it. Uh, he has heard, and this is what I was getting to think of. Like, okay, I looked at all the films that he had worked on, all the different you know mixes he'd made from of producers and, and composers and whatnot. And I got to thinking, like, man, he has heard some awesome music. And mm -hmm. the guys and the girls behind the glass are often like the ghosts, aren't they, of the music world? Like, you yeah. never really know what they've seen, who they've spoken to, but but the relationships that they must have formed and the trust with which yeah. they or the trust that they have with these these musicians. It, it it's it's you just don't hear about the people, the engineers, that, the mixers. Well, that's you know, it's for me, uh, you know, as a music lover, I. Honestly, it's like, you know, when you, you used to have movies and DVDs, you just look at the back of the box, like, hey, you know, look at the, uh, and you read, you know, the the track listing of the, I, I would always gravitate right towards like the, um, the, uh, the personnel. Like, uh, like if I, I go to like All Music, which is a great website, I always go to like, or on, on the album covers, so I was like, okay, who, like, if, depending on how the album's laid out, like, who did this instrument? Who did this to produce it? Like, I would, that's how I, I always gravitate to that because it's always really interesting because, like, sometimes you'll see, like, a, a name that you're like, I know that name. I wonder mm -hmm. why he was on this. Yeah. And yeah. so I find, I find that very interesting. So that's, that's really cool. It is cool. And, you know, I, I, it's just interesting that maybe because he was so early in his career, he didn't have a credit. I don't know. I don't really yeah, understand why, but yeah, it's possible. It, I mean, but they, basically that's it. The stage is set, okay? The Maybe is in, he wasn't is part of some kind of union or something like that. You know how, like, sometimes oh, a, a director is not mm, part that's of, true. Like, uh, yeah. like, a cinematographer's... Maybe he had to have a pseudonym or, or Waga or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good point, yeah. That's if anybody cool. knows why John Richards oh, yeah. does not have a up. credit, yeah, let us know why he's not given a credit for his work on the score. But sure. anyway, he, with, with Rich, or sorry, Richards, with Richards at the board, Ramon, is freed up to take charge of the synths, which is exactly what he did. And you've got that sort of triptych working, okay? you got Barry, Ramon, and Richards doing their job on the score. 
John Glenn, who edited this film, and of course, as we all know, goes on to become the 1980s director for the franchise, he recalled being at these recording sessions, and he told of how the whole room shook with the resonant bass of the Moog. I can imagine. his quote was, old John was the pioneer. That's what he said. He's in talking about uh, John Barry's use of the, the synth in this film. Old John was the pioneer, he said. According so, to John Glenn's perspective, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah, of course. Oh, but, yeah. I, but he was talking about the way he's, you know, using this, this in- instrument. In- incorporating incorporating all, yeah. like this triptych that you said. Mm-hmm. You have like mm-hmm. someone operating the Moog and then you have like someone planning out how to use it. Mm-hmm. And then you, ha- then you also have the orchestra conducted by Barry mm-hmm. at the same time. Barry recorded 80 minutes of music at uh, Cinatelli Studios for the score over five days. Now, it started late September, and by mid-October, they had recorded the 80 minutes of music. It's much different back... I mean, that, that to me is a, is a strange sort of schedule. Five days recorded, but spread between the 23rd and the 18th of October. So there was a lot of break, and I'm guessing a lot of listening and a lot of mixing in between yes. the recording sessions. A lot sessions. of studio heads coming a in. Lot, like yeah. I, could see, I could see Broccoli and Saltzman coming in going, I don't know about this, can you change that? Or No, they were, this- they were fairly supportive, as, oh, yeah. uh, as I'll, get, I'll get to that in a few moments. But um, I'm thinking it had more to do with the time probably required to, to, to kind of... Not so much that, but, you know, once you have this, you've got... Well, there were other things going on, yeah. But once you've got this instrument in place and you're using yeah. it, like you're, you, you've got to do a lot of tinkering with it, right? Yeah, so, I heard about that. But I don't know. I don't know what happened day by day. All that Burlingham's book um, shares with us is the that that time span of the twenty third to the eighteenth. If anybody has any information, like if anybody has <laughs> yeah. any, any documentation or, mm-hmm. or you know. You know a friend who knew a friend who knew a friend. Mm-hmm. L- let us know. Hit us up. <laughs> anyway, so let's... Okay, so we got a main title, right? And then we've got... We have All the Time in the World, which is the song that, song that Barry was going to write for the film. Now, Barry had the main title operative, not just over the credits, but also servicing some of the action cues in the film. And we'll talk about those shortly. And it mm-hmm. does it very well. But the love story between Bond and Tracy needed a theme. It would be based on a key line repeated by Bond three times in Fleming's book, most poignantly after, obviously, his wife's murder. Maybaum's script altered it from We've Got all the time in the world to We Have. And I think musically, that simple change makes a big difference, doesn't it, as a lyric? We've got all the time in the world to We Have. Anyway, Barry met with Hal David in London in autumn while his musical Promises, Promises neared opening. Hal David's another incredibly interesting figure too in terms of like his output of music and what he wrote you know song wise they became good pals uh when he met with david and they did a lot of pub crawling john barry did i've discovered since a lot of his chat a lot of his good work through the pubs and uh you know that's where he would hang out to kind of iron out deals and sort of talk orchestrations and things with the songwriting Mm. friends yeah anyway how david signed on to do two songs from the film we have all the time in the world, plus a Christmas song to be used as source music. Uh. He had early. <laughs> we'll get there. When, when does Nina come in? Yeah, exactly. We'll get there. We had, he had earlier worked with Burt Baccarat for Casino Royale 67, writing The Look of Love. And regardless of what you think about that film or what we might think when we come to review it, that's a great song. I think it's a great song, The Look of Love. Uh, at least I'll put my heart on my sleeve. <laughs> and uh, he would also write the lyrics for Moonraker a decade later. Yes. Ah. Yeah. Typically, with John Barry, the notes and the melody came first, 
uh, he thought of We Have All the Time in the World as a love song for adults. He says this, quote, for adults who are past starry-eyed notions of romance. He mm. describes it as wistful, hopeful, and even a tad melancholy. Yeah, it feels mm-hmm. like yes. that. Especially uh. with with Louis Armstrong's vocals. Like it, yeah. it definitely feels like it's like a love song for adults that are, are like maybe past their twilight almost. Mm. Yeah. I think yeah. I think you're right. And on a yeah. personal note, Jeff, you won't be surprised to learn. Barry was just about heading into his third marriage about this point. <laughs> he probably knew he probably knew what a song for damaged characters like Bond and Teresa should sound like. Yeah. Uh and yeah, not, Bond and Teresa yeah. are really damaged, aren't they? Like, oh, they totally you are. You have yeah. a guy who's basically like a tool for the government who kills people. And then you have a woman <laughs> who is like basically the daughter of a criminal uh, and essentially someone who just like is totally burned herself out completely on life mm-hmm. itself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it yeah. was it was John Barry who thought of Louis Armstrong. Uh, he really wanted a singer with an older voice who could sing about life reflectively and maturely. Mm-hmm. Broccoli... Broccoli and Hunt agreed, despite the choice being entirely an artistic one and not a commercial one. Mm-hmm. In his book, John Burlingham related a neat little story about how in the 1930s, Armstrong had performed in the York cinema or theater that was owned by Barry's father, because John Barry comes from York and his dad owned a theater. Uh, check out John Barry's Desert Island Discs. You can get that as a podcast where he was interviewed by the BBC. It's, it's great. Check that out. He talks all about growing up in York and having a dad who had a cinema, so as a young boy, he watched a lot of film, you know, and that's oh, kind of how all that kind of sank into him. Anyway, really, really cool. But yeah, Louis Armstrong performed at Barry's father's theater, and Barry still had photographs of the event that he brought along to the meeting, which was, I, I think that would have been pretty cool to see. Uh, Louis Armstrong arrived at A&R Studios New York on the 23rd of October to record the song. Barry conducted the orchestra under Armstrong's vocals, and it was kind of noteworthy because it marked the very first time that a James Bond picture involved an all-American orchestra. Now, that's not for the score, but for the song. Everybody remembers Armstrong being genuine, really sincere, really humble. And he was also very gracious, I think, in having the job. He said to John Barry at the end, thanks for the job when he was leaving. Now, I mean, Louis Armstrong at that stage in his career, I mean, very, very much in the twilight of his life. Probably didn't yeah. need to thank people for work, but he, that was he seemed, the last he seemed thing he to ever be. did. Oh, yeah. Was he, last, yeah. I think it was the really? last song. He died I, a year I, and a half later, yeah. 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 Well, I think they said it was one of the last songs that he ever did. Uh-huh. Uh, well, he never uh, performed it live. He did die a year and a half later and never had any success with it because when the yeah. film came out, it, it wasn't a hit. People talked about John Barry's music. Uh, as good but the song itself was just kind of part of that you know that that whole the the musical landscape of the film it wasn't really cited as being a great highlight um it wasn't until uh it was actually probably lazenby's fault because he was new and they didn't like him that the film's song didn't get charted because it never even reached the charts uh, ironically, though, a Guinness ad from 1994 helped to resurrect the, the song and did hit some chords with the public. You can get that. You can check that out. It's 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 okay. It but was also the interest to revival, I think, like, or sort of like the the cult nature of On Her Majesty's Secret Service way down the line probably also resurrected popularity yeah. for the song as well. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, what else do I got here on that? Yeah, the other song that was written by David and uh, Hal David and John Barry would be "Do You Know How Christmas's Trees Are Christmas Trees Are Grown." Uh, that was sung. <laughs> that was sung by Nina Van Palen, 
for mm. whom Barry had served as a musical director in the early 60s when she performed as part of Nina and Frederick in different... Oh, cabins. yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like a folk, weren't they? A folk yeah, that's duo. right. Yeah. Mm. I saw one, I found one of their records in the... <laughs> The and the bin beside switch on box. <laughs> I didn't get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they <sighs> they played uh, they did a little tour across London in the early '60s, different mm. cabaret and concert venues, cabaret bars, I guess, uh, ca- mm. concert venues, and that is that's where Barry met them as kind of their director, the kind of tour uh, operator, or whatever. The song is used memorably though, three different places in the film, and we can talk about that in a few moments. Yes. Honor Majesty's Secret Service premiered on the 18th of December, 1969. Critics were not kind to Lazenby, but many were of the music. Now, I, yeah. this is just a short little note here. Uh, I thought, because John Burlingham in his book went through them, I thought it might be quite helpful to read out the reviews. They're not re- full like reviews, they're just blurbs um, that the, the press thought of it at the time. Uh, right, who do we got here? The Los Angeles Times say, John Barry's music is always intelligent and this time has a chance to be extensively lyrical as well as adventurous. England's Films and Filming began its review by talking about the music. Quote, John Barry's strident brass section heralds the fact that Bond is back. End quote. And Variety even cited Barry's new synthesizer sounds, albeit in a crude way. Quote, in one suspense sequence where Bond is opening a safe with a special computer, a bleeper mm. beat counterpointing the full orchestra creates a palpably electric tension. Mm. Now, so, I mean, that, that's straight from the book, straight from Burlingham's book. Um, Broccoli, however, and United Artists were proud of this music, uh, proud enough. And I wonder if this is a publicity stunt because they know that they got to sell this film as something with the new Bond. But they promoted the song and the score for the Academy Award consideration. The Mm. music branch of the Academy, however, did not take Bond seriously then at all and did not... Unlike now. Unlike now, (laughs) yeah. So, uh, yeah, they did not uh, accept the score for consideration. But I'm wondering if that is Broccoli and United Artists really kind of getting on the oh this this is really different bandwagon this is really big or if that's them saying let's try to bluff that this is going to be a great film um because we got a bond that nobody likes but let's put our real effort behind it i don't know i mean i don't know how those stories worked i don't know how studios pushed films for oscar consideration back in the day i understand the business of it today but i don't know how what, what they might have been thinking in doing that. Were they genuine? Yeah. I mean, certainly they had faith in Barry as a writer, and I don't doubt that they were aware that this is a great score, but I can't help but wonder, somewhat cynically, well, that the they didn't that have they... faith in their own lead actor and they, they wanted to try to get a good headline out there. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't be sur- Oh, absolutely. Yes. And if you go back to what uh, Broccoli's wife said about, you know, when George showed up at that party, and, uh, oh, yeah. he, he, and it bec- because... Uh, he never got an invitation, and he was pissed off about that. But he, and he got, and yeah, and, yeah, and and uh, Broccoli just went off him, and he said mm-hmm. basically, it's going like, you're not a, a star because you're a good actor, or you're not mm-hmm. a good star because you're a star because they make mm-hmm. you a star. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, he wasn't very humble about it at all. Like, it, it, mm-hmm. I, I just can't imagine just like the train of thought in his head, and maybe he got too much of himself, or. And he couldn't handle it. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I do think. Yeah. I think you're right. And he's listening to his agent. His agent is pouring shit in his ear too, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, well, guys, look, we're almost there. We're almost ready to start playing and talking about some of this music. I got one last little bit to share with you, and it has to do with the album releases. Okay. For over 30 years, the only 
release of Barry Score was the original EMI release. And that followed the the vinyl 11-track recording, which amounted to just over 37 minutes. Now, in 2003, EMI remastered and re-released the soundtrack with an additional 40 minutes of music, which, if you think about it, is incredible for that's a re-release. Like a, that's like a full... It's a full like soundtrack double. more. Yeah, totally. Before, yeah. And this provided nearly all of the music that Barry wrote for the film. The sequencing, though, I don't know how you felt about it, guys, when you were doing your look through it, but I felt yeah. like the sequencing of these albums is really bonkers. Like, yeah, none is. of the tracks like follow suit in any sensible order. No. And I and I don't know, like, maybe it's just me, but if I find it kind of challenging if you're looking to kind of recreate the feeling or the experience of the film while you're yeah. listening. Because in the case of the expanded release from 2003, they've, they've just kind of tagged the extra tracks onto the end of the original 11. And I, that... That yeah. suggests to me that they didn't really think or care much about how it came out no. to wash. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and I, I, I hate uh, when they do that. Man, I hate that. And, and Josh, and, earlier in the in the week, Josh, you and you and I talked about Jeff Bond's liner notes, which yes. were kind of lame. Like they just talk a lot about the film, but they don't really reveal a lot about the score. And that no, was surprising don't. because Jeff Bond is it's damn good at writing about film music. And that kind of makes it suck even more, you know, that that album. But at the end of the day, it's the music you want, and you're getting 40 extra minutes of music. Yes. And it is beautifully represented, it, whether it's out of sequence and underwritten about yeah. whatever. The guy, by the way, who produced that remastered edition, Lucas Kendall, I don't know if you know anything about him, but he's a huge name in film music. I don't know what his role is might, might have been in the sequencing of the album, but he's a big name in film music writing particularly he's the founder of film score monthly it started out its life as a pamphlet like a little publication for fans and then it became a mail order magazine and then it went online and now film score monthly i think is probably synonymous within the community um for re-releasing lost or incomplete scores Mm. uh and so lucas kendall is a big big deal in film music but you know in teaching I'm thinking about my own job now. Like I'm forever reminding kids, you know, when they're writing for assessments that you got to think about the reader's experience. Like if you're writing, you don't necessarily write for the reader, but you got to think about how they're going to experience your work. And for that reason, you should have an audience in, in awareness while you're producing something as a production equivalent. EMI, I, I, I don't think they thought about the reader at all, you know, when they were putting this re-expanded thing no, together. No, it, it just seems like there was, there, they were basically re-releasing all the Bond tracks all, again and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. remastering them, but there wasn't really any love put into it, you know, yeah, like it, yeah. looks, it looks like there was just someone who just wanted to add extra music to it. Yeah. And maybe back in t- when 2003, when that was done, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service was still maybe hadn't quite had its resurgence of popularity, you know what maybe, I mean? Maybe, yeah, you might be right, although... I think it was probably Josh at that time that the film was coming back uh, and, and being reviewed in that kind of classic way. Yeah. So yeah, you're probably right. It was maybe at the cusp of, or, or just sort of beginning that, you know, but Hey guys, look, thank you very much for indulging me through all those notes. And indeed, thank you listeners for, uh, for taking those early steps with us. We know we went on, but hopefully some of that you didn't know before you can find interesting and will help inform your appreciation of the score or indeed the next 45 minutes or an hour when Josh and Jeff and I get to the fun bit where we're going to start listening and chatting through some of this stuff. That, gentlemen, is that. We are now ready to talk about the score itself. Good. Should we just start with the main title? 
because yeah. the main title is where we get this Moog. It's where we get the theme's melody with this sort of yes. dark coloring, you know, and we get that that sort of step down synthesizer reminding us and of the that kind of great danger. Shall we just play the main title for for a little? Yeah, moment? sure. Yeah, yeah. Are you, you cool with that? Are we happy to start. That? Oh yeah, no, yes. no, that's good. Yep. All right, cool. I think perhaps most iconic is that sort of step down synth. You know, you get I love that. The, I love the bass line when it comes in too. Yeah, the bass line is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, it almost sounds like a western. <laughs> yeah, how do you like mean? A, how do you mean? Like a yeah. more Tony a little bit in a way yeah. too. <laughs> how do you mean, I mean, Jeff? If you will, if you will. Uh, I just meant just sort of don't do don't do don't do like it. Okay. It, it sounds yeah. like I can just picture like Johnny Cash. Or something, kind of, yeah, like a, a little bit. But I'm not trying to detract from the track itself. Uh, I, I really like it. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention as you, uh, we were talking about sort of what the score was and and the importance of it is that I feel like even though it's a new instrument, it's not overused, and mm-hmm. it's and I think it's used perfectly. So like, there's mm-hmm. still obviously elements of Barry in there. It's a good score. It's not just like, here's a brand new instrument. Let's use the shit out of nope. it. Every no, it's part of the orchestra. It's a, it's exactly. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a or- organ. It's organic to the orchestra itself. Mm-hmm. And, and even though it's it's a part of the orchestra, it's again, it's just not it's not overused, which you can see sometimes in in different. Uh, albums or, 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 or films where they just want to like this isn't this is like this instrument featuring an orchestra no they use it they use it really well they <laughs> yeah, use it really yeah. well uh-huh. uh, and it's yeah. not overdone and the thing is if you if you and it, a moog would definitely have you know it would have been like pouring a whole shaker of salt instead of a pinch mm-hmm. and I think it, it and this is why this works so well is that it was yeah. used properly with the right amount throughout the score so do you guys think then that this was this is a case of right place right time that barry had a project where he needed to do something different and bigger than before and out comes this this incredible instrument that he's just started to experiment with the year before in lion and winter and has just become popularized by uh, by wendy carlos's i mean do you think that this is all just like the perfect storm of coincidence It's a serendipity. Of, it's a confluence of events if you think about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, you like, it's you're like Barry coming off uh, the line of winter. You have Wendy Carlos coming in. Uh, you got like, and then you also you got Phil Ramone at the same time. So all of those things are connecting, right, all at mm. once. And then you have Barry needing to make a Bond score that's really memorable because it's very possible that the movie that they're making may not be as popular as the as the previous Bond film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That being said, I also feel that there's a lot of confidence in that because then they're 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 you know they're they're it's kind of they're taking this uh, it's a bit of a risk because it's a new instrument mm-hmm. and you have a lot of sort of like uh, unknown factors coming here. You have like a a new Bond and then you're using like this brand new instrument that's not really known and you're yeah, you're trying yeah. to mix it with like the classic Bond thing that everyone knows already or, mm-hmm. or Bond score uh, and everyone already knows the, the Bond music at this point. So it, it is a bit of a risk factor, but it shows confidence that he's willing to do that and it works yes. very well. Absolutely. Well, let, like, let me ask you guys then how when you when you listen to the instrument when you listen to that that sort of main title what 
I mean, what's coming to mind here? What sort of images are promoted or evoked as you're listening to this? Bonds. But a hip... Yeah, that's the thing, is that it's it's the the new Bond. It's like, it's, you know... And you hear this immediately after that line, this didn't happen to the other mm-hmm. feller. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so you know, it just connects right then and there that this is a different Bond movie than what you've seen before. And I think it's important because it, it is. I mean, like, if you, it really is. It's like, look, you got a new Bond, you got a new sound. It's mm-hmm. like, here you go. If you will, it's a it's a sonic door being opened, yes. uh, and just showing you the new world of Bond. And and I I literally even though I can literally picture you know Bond with like you know the tweed jacket and a and a a, a, a turtleneck as we call it here with you know and that's just I picture like you know the new guy. That's how I, that's how I feel because of that that sound. It's a very sixties late sixties sound. So it's a very mod slash modern sound so, so yeah. what what about then like when the brass comes over that sort of it, it's not really heroic but there's a fanfare no. to the brass and the percussion is kind of chasing you like i like to talk about the music of this particular main title because for me i don't associate the moog sound with bond i think no. of this more as bonds i wasn't what, talking what he's... about the moog sound i was talking about just the sound this because because when, when he says this didn't happen to the utterfeller and then it transitions to the main credits mm-hmm. it it begin. It be. It, it goes dun dun dun. You know, like the brass mm-hmm. and the trump. The trumpets come in first, and that to me it was John Barry classic Bond. So you're never yeah, getting yeah, Bond. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's when the titles start, and then all of a sudden, uh, then you have the Moog coming. That change, in. right? And then right. they go, okay, this is something. This is something different. Yeah, this is something yeah. really that's, different. And then the uh, bass line comes in, and then you're already like you're already getting into it, and it's because it's so different. And then those trumpets come in, mm-hmm. so confident, and mm-hmm. like you can tell, wow, that's such a powerful piece. That main motif you know mm-hmm. or under magic service that if you're a bond fan like even prior to the other films that come out like if you had actually read the fleming novels yeah to me in the theater i would be like oh man they're going to do that story justice mm-hmm. that's what i would feel in the theater right then and there at that moment i'm well, just saying yeah. that right now I, I would agree with josh in the sense like the opening you know a few seconds of this of the song brings three different styles of sound and it's mm-hmm. kind of like here you go here's classic barry new mod sound and then you know James the amalgam Bond. of them both yeah the amalgam yeah. Of them. so it's kind and of and like the building a, of know. the trumpets as it, as it keeps going right and then it, until it finally fades in out with the synth you know what i mean mm. yeah you already hear the synth in the in the in the cold open as well because you have the gun, yeah. already it establishes with the gun barrel sequence mm-hmm. already yeah. using that synthesizer already and yeah that's yeah, yeah, no, you're right, buddy. And one, one of my favorite parts of the score is that beginning where we get the 007 theme as he's lighting a cigarette and he's kind of following Tracy. Yes. And that's played in a very different style with the Mo kind of underneath it. And that's yeah. that's really, that's a great moment. And, so you're right, yeah. Put together like that and uh, the, the cinematography and then John Glenn's editing of that whole sequence and, mm-hmm. just, and then overall Hunt's direction is just so perfect. And then Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, buddy. I just no while, while you're talking about that, let me ask you guys this. Uh, and I guess it's not necessarily a musical thing, but the music reminded me of it. We've got the focus on the cigarette, right? And they're uh, at the beginning here, Bond taking it out of the case. The, the beginning of Dr. No, where Bond starts, the beginning, the genesis of Bond on screen is, of course... Mm-hmm. He playing Baccarat and Sylvia Trench with the cigarette, Bond with the yeah. cigarette. Very cool, lighting it up. Do you think that Hunt is going for something similar in artistic design here by starting that way? You mean like starting going, that way? Inter- 
in a Jungian. <laughs> yeah, is he is he trying to is he trying to yes. create or recreate or remind us that this is Bond? This is yeah, the guy. Probably. Yeah, he wants to reestablish the 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 Terrence Young feel that I think probably got lost post Goldfinger. Hmm. Even though Young did Thunderball, it still seems like it was still like almost like they wanted another guy Hamilton pitcher more so yeah, than a Terrence yeah. Young pitcher with Thunderball. And I think Thunderball, as I mentioned before, it got so bloated. Mm-hmm. I don't think Terrence Young was didn't really didn't really want to make a film like that. You know, like mm-hmm. I think he mm-hmm. wanted to do something more, uh, more I guess subdued, like Doctor Nowhere from Russia of Love. You know what I mean? Yeah. And also to point out, one thing I realized this, and I may have misquoted this on the show, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I first, if I didn't mention that Ken Adam mm-hmm. designed like Pitts Gloria, I forgot that it, Ken Adam had was not on the production no, of Iron right. Good Service. It was oh, Sid yeah. King. Who, yeah. did, uh, oh, yeah. who, who did who uh, did promotion of love? So that's right. Not only are they trying to sell the new Bond, but I think in a way, as like John Glenn tried to do it for your eyes mm-hmm. only, I think they wanted to bring Bond back to his climbing roots. In my yeah, opinion. yeah. This was yeah. a score to do it. Yeah, that's that's true. And perhaps the yeah. um, perhaps that was that's all part of the whole art design and the decision to get the cigarettes there featured focus at the start of the film. And yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Okay, so we've got this main title. Now, the, the main title, after the credits, doesn't come back for about 90 minutes, right? We, we don't that's see right, it again right. until Bond is escaping Piz Gloria. Now, I think that that's yes. just a good example of director working with composer because you've got the narrative taking a break and then we got the love story being built and that's why we got 90 minutes of, you know, we have all the time in the world orchestrated over a couple of different yeah. scenes. So Bond well, falls in love in the first 60 to 80 minutes. We, he learns about Tracy and Draco, and the love theme takes up that narrative space, yeah, if I can say that. Right? First, hear like the the instrumental tunes of of uh, all the time in the world when it's like with Bond and Tracy's first coupling, like mm-hmm. after he goes back to the hotel room and then has the fight, and then comes back to and then goes back to his own room, and then she has the gun, and then he kind of disarms her in his way, yeah. unfortunately yeah. slapping her. Uh, but then afterwards, she's you know you can see he feels sorry for her and you kind of says you can kind of see their no pun intended or maybe their bond developing mm-hmm. and that's when you first hear the all the time in the world uh, theme yeah uh, it's when bond then, is looking at her he looks at her in the in the doorway of the hotel room and he says you know you're an interesting woman and that's where we start that's the very first moment that that theme is played for us and then and then following that then once he wakes up and she's gone and he goes down in the lobby where Draco's men accost him uh-huh. and put him in the car. That is actually the, the drive to Draco's office. It's a more militaristic display of all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, but it musically connects Teresa to Draco. So it's like a foreshadowing be- yeah. uh, for the yeah. reveal that Draco is Tracy's uh, father. Well, guys, then Jeff, I, I want to give you a moment here to talk about this theme because I know you like it. We have all the time in the world. But I, I think, I feel as though most would agree on this point, that while the main title is great when it shows up and is certainly principal for the action of the film, this is really the theme of the movie. We have all the time in the world. It is. Yes. And, and I think it's kind of like the, uh, it's almost like the, what well, is, just because I feel like it's used more than anything else. It is. It's it definitely more, is. You yes. know what I mean? And, yeah. and it's, it, it, uh-huh. what's really interesting is that uh, I, I feel like it's really used very well in different in different ways throughout the film. It's it's perfectly um, mixed and, and sort of recycled. It's, that's not even that's not a very nice word to use. No, but, but it is. It's reorchestrated but, uh, and it's, it's used in various ways. Yeah. yeah. 
Shall we listen to it for a moment? Shall we just sure, take a minute and listen yeah. to it? Would you like to listen to Louis Armstrong's song as we hear it in the montage, or do you want do you want an orchestrated version? I, I think we get the instrumental version. Yeah. Okay, if, sure. cool. Yeah. It is used then. It's used when she drives to visit her dad on his birthday, when yeah, when Draco is when Draco is telling Bond about her upbringing. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you guys noticed uh, it, but about the mother and the father, about about her, about her and her mother. I, uh, sorry, about Draco and her mother. Yeah, that's right. And at uh, the the cue in the 2003 album is called Bond and Draco. And when Draco was talking about Tracy's upbringing, the 007 theme plays over top of the love theme just yes. at the moment when he says what she really needs is a man who will dominate her. To dominate her. Exactly. It just sort of shows up then. I, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a bit on the nose. It's, it's a bit on the nose. Actually. Yeah, it really is. But <laughs> yeah. Jeff, I mean, Jeff, you're a big fan of this theme. You're a big fan of the song. You said yeah. so on the, the episode where we were dealing with uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service and let's just uh, hear your thoughts on this because it is as you say it's used so many times throughout the film and orchestrated as Josh intimated you know as a sort of light fanfare to introduce Tracy's father and whatnot, little march well, I mean why do you like this so much? It's just there's so many kind of different versions of it in, in, in the film like uh, one I mean Lu, Lu, uh, you know Louis Armstrong's vocals it's 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 very soothing it's a very it's a very warm song it's very relaxing but then also the way um, that it's used uh, and it's sort of intertwined and uh, reorchestrated throughout the score it's just so well done and it's one of those examples of, of why the score is you know a piece of art this could be possibly one of the reasons why a lot of people do appreciate this score is that I thought it was used very, very well and it captured different feelings um, yes. th throughout. Yeah, it does, and, doesn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I, I feel like each each time that it's used, it's perfect. Hmm. And yeah. and just the little intricacies of, of, you know, the if it's instrumental or if it's the actual version with the lyrics where they put it obviously they do it on purpose but where they where they put it and when they put it is absolutely perfect well, yeah. and, and that's why i think this song works so well and it's 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 a very unique song for a bond film and uh, i think it's just used absolutely perfectly well we you got it right on Sorry, that buddy. unique thing you got that right on the unique thing jeff because if you think about it like the main theme made for the movie, the instrumental theme, it's like an action piece. It's used in the in the movie as an action mm -hmm. piece, like a kick-ass. Just think of that scene, like when Bond is putting on his skis after he got out of the uh, cable car room, and he's putting on his gears, and it's like yeah. a trembling version of the theme beginning to build up. And then he, and you have that, then you have the music going full, that theme going full blast when he's being pursued into mm -hmm. uh, town below, right? Yeah. But that's an action piece. The yeah. thing is, is that the movie advertised this is the main theme of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's an mm -hmm. action piece. That's what people want. But what happens though is the end is this theme on all time in the world. Hmm. It's like the, it becomes the resonant theme of, of yep. the entire film and it's used in different ways to connote the relationship <laughs> and also what the feelings are in that relationship. Like for yep. example, like I mentioned, the March way is done to connecting mm -hmm. Tracy uh, to Draco. Uh, then you also have the montage sequence. Then you have the sequence even when Bond is flying over to mm -hmm. his glory on the helicopter. Yeah. 
There's mm-hmm. almost like it's not the full stated version of of the theme. No, but you, but you get little bits of it. There, you get little bits. It feels of it. tense. Mm-hmm. It feels yeah. tense. It feels like it's like it's, it's like this is it's such a much bigger situation that's going on. There's bigger stakes. Yeah, and you kind of the tension in that sequence. You know what I mean? And I think you're. And I think it's you're also onto... foreboding the menace that's going to end up in the tragedy of, of the story at the very end. Because in the end, you're not watching a Bond film. You're watching a tragic love story. Well, there's you know? a, there's a great contrast between yeah. the two themes, and I think what you're what you're driving at, Josh, is correct. Um, I've made a list here of all the different times that I, on my rewatch of the film, could note that this theme was reworked. Okay, that that, that song we have yeah, all the time. It was reworked a lot. So we, yeah, yeah each time it worked very well. It did, yeah. When she drives to visit her dad on his birthday, when Draco's telling Bond about her upbringing, fully, of course, in that montage, when Bond and Tracy are in the barn and he proposes, at the end when she's shot by uh, Bond and uh, Bond caresses her, it's orchestrated as that light march and played in various ways as he's driving to Draco construction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the scene would otherwise be tense and threatening but Barry is sort of telling us here that this is the business side of the Teresa character this is her dad you're going to meet in a few minutes so just exactly. just go with it just go along with it it's going to be fine you know uh, yeah. when Bond gets money penny to write the letter of resignation we hear it exiting the chopper at Piz Gloria we hear it and yes. with, with that St. Bernard rescue at the end after the bobsled <laughs> chase a, a bit of catharsis oh, yeah. and yeah. I think what you're saying Josh is correct and I, I'm probably going to articulate it in a different way but it's kind, it's kind of the film's way and I guess John Barry's way of saying that Bond's feelings for Tracy are kind of motivating him in ways that he might not understand and that are kind yes. of going throughout the whole film you know exactly and yeah. I was oh, thinking yeah. like that whole yeah. sequence you mentioned Money Penny's office when he does the mm-hmm. resignation it's almost like his emotions are taking over mm-hmm. and you're wondering is he using her just to get the information and that's, that's right. what Tracy yeah. is thinking yeah that's what Tracy is thinking as well mm-hmm. but then afterwards when he gets that information from her from mm-hmm. from her father because she makes her father tell him yeah uh then she walks away and then even though he has what he needs he comes back to her mm-hmm. and then he says you know that's when he says you know like I think we're, we could try to be something you know yeah so and that's yeah. me automatically yeah. the previous sequence when about the resignation and stuff it's not just him wanting to get blowfeld mm. he's actually having feelings for this girl and, so, and 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 that validates those feelings to to, to the audience as well that yes. you know that he's in love with her and then you have the montage sequence and it doesn't seem forced or cheesy mm-hmm. no. because of the musical build-up yeah and we've already had and yeah. get to that point in, in accompaniment mm-hmm. to the writing yeah. and the directing as well mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because yeah, with that, it, it, with all the different cues for this, it's almost like it's it's helping the audience with like Bond's train of thought. Yeah, yeah, it's characterizing it the music is characterizing him, and it, it's, it's it, characterizing it really is, his yeah. train of thought and how he's thinking about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. the vulnerability that Lazenby brings to the role as a as an actor with no experience, you know, not not least a James Bond with no experience. I think that really serves this picture well. We talked about it when we did a review of Majesties because he does kind of look like you know, shocked in some places. He looked worried in, in some places. You know that this is a man who's having producers and directors telling him things and he's, he's all wide-eyed about it all. Like that scene where yeah. Tracy rescues him at the, uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the ice capades or whatever, yes. you know, that ice yeah. festival. You know that he's look, he looks legitimately worried and the tension there works because you know that this is a guy that's kind of out of his element, right? But... Um, yeah, I just the, di- the diegetic music too. Uh, that's an important. Yeah, we're, we're gonna like you have. We'll get that on to band that. that plays the same song all the time. Do 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 do
Yeah, which didn't make its way onto the album, unfortunately. One thing I noticed watching the movie the other night, though, the first time you hear the first lyrics of, Mm -hmm. like, Christmas trees are grown is when you see Irma Bunn for the first time. It's Mm -hmm. almost like she's, like, this evil Hansel and Gretzel witch that's going to just, like, consume (laughs) the innocence, you know what I mean? Like, that's basically... It is, yeah. It's just so perfect. So automatically that song has an undertone of menace Mm -hmm. already because your association with Bunt. And then when he's being chased to the town afterwards and you're still hearing that song, and he's spirit of like a of an actual like a, like a Disneyland type mm-hmm. uh, guy dressed up like a bear. He yeah. actually it the hell out of Bond because he's so like high strung at that point. That's right. You know, that you just how they use that piece of music as a sense of menace. It's brilliant. It really is because you yeah. don't you don't hear it at any moment that is actual levity in the story. It's always when Bond is running or Bond's in trouble or we've got this character or again it's it's used and I don't know what the instrument is. It sounds like a Glockenspiel to me when Bond when Blofeld is giving the girls their last hypnosis. You know before they go yes. away with their gifts. Yes. You hear it there and each time you hear it, it's 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 kind of like ooh this is unsettling because you know it's a children's tune. You know it's a safe happy thing but every image associated with it is dangerous right it's and, nefarious and, and yeah and that's cross-cutting also too to bond basically on the on the wire on the cable trying to escape at the same time right mm-hmm. so you know that like that oh this is real life stakes but mm-hmm. because it's real life they're that kind of music gets played all the time like that kind of innocent type of music or that kind of innocent atmosphere will yeah. exist there's still Christmas time still exists you know where people are happy in their houses mm-hmm. where people are in the town where they're enjoying a festival but in meanwhile, at the same time, there are people's lives in danger and everyone's oblivious to it. And I think that's a great tension that they established in the movie. Yeah. Now, Jeff, you had mentioned a few moments ago uh, the, the Q Gumbold safe. And mm. I know, Josh, you like this one, too. It, it's a great use yes. of the Moog. I wonder if I could just play this, Jeff, and you want to say a few yeah. words about it. Sure. Yeah. Now, Gumbold safe is really interesting. This is what you would call an ostinato, right? Um, it, it's where you got this sort of musical line or motif or phrase that's sort of repeated. And little bits are added to it, particularly as the tension of the scene rises and increases. But you got the piano, you got the timpani and the low strings. They're really easy to hear. And then when there's more danger, I guess, of, of time running out, I guess, Barry adds that Moog as a reminder of the increased risk, right? I mean, this is quite a simple one to deconstruct musically, but the tension here really works in this scene. Do you guys, I mean, yes. Jeff, you want to yeah, go first on this? I, well, I, I was going to say, it's it's simplistic, which helps too, so it doesn't make it too complicated and uh, it's it's just it, the build up and that's the thing in these kind of like you know in, in these kind of scenes where it's you know it's clandestine and all that kind of stuff and you know there is uh, there's suspense this kind of thing works really really well and jo- Josh was speaking to me about this a couple of days ago about this you know how he we, how we really likes it and I, I had made a point to, to sort of listen to this uh, track a few more times and I, I definitely agree that it, it's a it's a very very well put together uh, scene especially with the score and and, uh, and it's obviously a very good sort of uh, example of of the Moog and uh, I, I I really I do really enjoy sort of just the entire scene and, and how the music this is a very good example of how the music really sets the tone for the scene. I mean, you could do a scene like this without music, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't be the same. And I, I think um, all these cues and just the buildup, like you were saying, uh, is uh, is is very very well done. And, and just the little notes, like it's not too much. Mm-hmm. And again, this is what we were saying before: is with, with the Moog, 
you can definitely overdo it because obviously, you know, mm-hmm. and so this is, again, a little pinch here and there, the little sugar, as I would call it, it's just little notes here and there mm-hmm. make all the difference. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that really, really sort of, in my opinion, really sets this scene apart from others because of, of the use of the, of the moak, but not the overuse of the moak. <laughs> No, you're right, buddy. And uh, I don't I don't know we got to go into it more than that. It is understated and that's probably why it's effective. It's also why, Exactly. It's a scene that lingers and you guys it hear lingers. me talk about that yeah. all the time. I, I love a bit of lingering and when yeah. I get when I get linger, lingering su- supported by music, I'm probably going to like it and Yes. Yeah, it's good. This is really good. But I really it, like makes, how... it makes you it makes you uh, sorry, Josh. It just it makes you want to sit back and be like, okay, what's gonna happen? Like there's a lingering, yes. so something's yeah. gonna happen. Yeah. So it makes me invest in the scene. This is why this scene is probably uh well we all remember it, is because you're invested because of the style of music and the type of scene that it is, because mm-hmm. it's suspenseful, you have to make it like you're saying linger, and that's what yes. good good suspense is, and obviously yes. suspense in film uh, they go hand in hand with with the score or the piece of music that goes with it. Look at look at horror films and the so, writing. So, so so well, yes, the writing obviously, but and with horror is. with horror films, even though this isn't a horror film, obviously or suspense films, a lot of scenes would not be as a suspenseful or scary if it wasn't for the orchestral pieces or the score pieces that are tracked with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We we could I'll just throw it out there like the the scenes with um, the the shining like the the opening like tracky shot of the driving that's just driving, mm-hmm. but when you have that like that build up that really eerie track of of just the car driving up to the hotel. It's scary as shit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. they could drive you know? to Transylvania, basically. <laughs> I mean, like, I've, I've never been more scared of just watching, like, a family drive to that's a right, place yeah. in Colorado. Yeah, but if you put Steppenwolf in front of that, you're going to, you know, you're going to have magic yeah, yeah. carpet ride, and it's all fun car advertisement, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. all about how the music matches the image. But, yes, um, exactly. Sorry, I kind of went off there, man. That's, that's cool. all, No, you got it. You got it down good, man. Uh, so two things I want to mention about this particular piece of music in that scene. Mm-hmm. One thing I really like is the transition because this is when the montage sequence comes to an end with mm-hmm. uh, all the time in the world. And you had that comfortable kind of like, uh, I guess, buffer zone that bonded in yeah, yeah. With, with Tracy, that really romantic kind of moment, their banter, their talk, like they're 100% a couple mm-hmm. at this point. Then he gets out of the car and then goes into the office building. Yeah. Now, Bond isn't really in danger here. I mean, all he's really, but the thing is, already the nefarious music that's kind mm-hmm. of playing, even while he's like, you know, hoping the lawyer doesn't catch him when he gets back from his break. Yeah. It's actually a complex high stakes because yeah. very much that, so. Yeah. You know, that lawyer is not going to mess up bond at all. You know, bond could take gumball down any yeah, day. Of course. But yeah. automatically though, he'll blow the cover. He'll blow that's the whole operation. Exactly. If he gets, if mm. he gets caught. So that's exactly. where the tension is put in there. Uh-huh. Right. And then it also really shows bond professional swagger. Despite the tension, we as the audience are kind of like, Oh man, he's going to come back and get busted. Right. You know, like, Get it done. Get it done. Get out as soon as you yeah. can. They're detected. We're all rooting for him in the spy craft, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, Bond is like, you know, he he knows what he's doing. He's mm-hmm. maybe he's his reading mind. a Playboy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how he just puts things together, sit down, yeah. read a Playboy while the while the lock <laughs> does everything. Mm-hmm. The yeah. whole professionalism, that whole sequence is great. I'm gonna ask then. I'm gonna I'm gonna put something to you, and this might be a little bit interpretive on my part, but this is how I read the the use of the Moog, and I'm I don't. I see that as 
as the the danger. I see that Moog sound as the danger, as the Blofeld, as the whatever. And yeah. so when it's playing here in half notes, there's something connecting. Like that's Bond is in a fucking lawyer's office scanning. Well, he's not scanning. He's photocopying papers that he thinks. Yeah that will lead him to Blofeld, right? Yeah. I see the Moog as that little reminder of the danger to come, yeah. just as the main yeah, title exactly. is the danger to come. Like, I don't see the Moog being used in any other way but atmospheric no. yeah, to equate exactly with the, the evil stuff, right? And, and the reason that works is because, again, maybe some people have never heard of Moog before, right? Mm-hmm. So the thing is, is that, it, and again, it, it's not like, it's it's an odd sound and it could be a bit off-putting. So it's, Having that that style, that sound, will trigger the audience to be like, "Oh, there's something there." Like it's almost like a reminder. Like it's like you know when you, it's like your spider sense. Basically, mm-hmm. is what it is. It's like mm-hmm. that thing yeah. in the back here, like, "Oh." And I'm, you know what? You that, mean, that, that's a really good way to describe it. The spider sense, because it is, it is that that's sort right. of tingling. Oh, this isn't. This is not right. This is kind of the of, rest. Yeah, yeah. Because then the you Peter, have the rest the of the tingle. <laughs> exactly. It is because the rest of it makes sense, but then you have that that new that new sound, if you will, because of the moog. Is that new yes. kind of like synth? Like, oh, there's something there. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's I think is what you're getting at. I think that's what that is. So we've got the two main themes, right? And we've talked about the two main themes and the reorchestration of them. Uh, we haven't really talked about the escape music yet, and we can mm-hmm. do that briefly in the Battle of Pills Gloria. But what about this? And it's not fair to call it a girls' theme because the truth is, the, the when horny theme, the like, horny, uh, the horny, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the you know the sex theme, whatever. Because when we get those, when we the get those saxophones. Wah, 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 yeah. Right? When we get yeah. that. When that appears, it's not right to call it the girls' theme because the girls give as good as they get in this film with him. Yeah. And yeah. at least on Piz Gloria, they do. Uh, Tracy gets a really raw deal. But yeah. it, it, it's kind of like a seduction theme, right? Like love on Piz Gloria is, I guess, what you could call it. It's, it's like a mutual seduction theme. But what do you guys make of that? Um, because we do hear it a lot, particularly when we're watching the girls and we're yeah. listening to the angels of death talk, you know, to Bond. It could, and... be, it could be argued that, like, the whole subplot with the angels of death, like, it makes sense in the end. It could be argued that that, even the music used towards it, is kind of, like, regressing back into, like, the previous Bond films mm-hmm, a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even looking towards the future. Or, or, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's looking towards diamonds. I think it's looking towards Golden Gun. But is it also giving the audience that that auditory reminder that this is still uh, Lothario, even if he's in love, even if he's got a girl, like he can still have his fun here. This is still James Bond, the playboy. Is that also what we're getting from this? That's what I'm getting from that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Like, yeah, I, I feel that. But again, like I also feel that, like in a way, like. We know that his, you know, we we know that he loves Tracy mm-hmm. uh, at this point, and at the same time, like he's back into his Bond mode. Mm-hmm. So he's actually like on assignment, and maybe that way that's what that music is like reinforcing, right? Because okay, again, yeah, yeah. that music disappears automatically once he's in the bed with the, with the woman, and then the Blofeld's Moog presence comes in through a hypnotism scene in the bedroom, Blo- right? Blofeld. <laughs> Blogfeld, yeah. Blogfeld, Mogfeld. Blog, blog, yeah, Blogfeld. Right. <laughs> Too much time on that. But let okay, then let, let's talk yeah. about that. So so we accept that the horny theme is just sort of the little cue on flutes and sax that Barry gives to the love and the, the casual love of being around all these beautiful women. Okay, fine. Yes. So then we got the mind control thing. And this is where the Moog plays an interesting part, right? Like, um, if you listen to Blofeld's Plot, is that the track, guys? Have you got the, let me see, Blofeld's Plot here. 
I'll just play a moment of this and get your thoughts on it. Okay, here we go. That's another one of these repeated phrases that that comes a few times, not just Almost when he's hypnotic, eh? Oh, it is very much kind of dizzying, isn't it? You know, like yeah, uh, yeah it's, it is. It's, it's quite cool. What do you make of that, Jeff? That that well, the way yeah, that's I, used in these scenes. Again, I, I I'm thinking. I was just sorry. I was just thinking when I was we were talking about the, the safe scene. I, I think that the <laughs> the Moog is almost used as danger. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Anytime you hear it, there's danger. Anytime you hear it, at least in, in this case, maybe for this film. I don't want to say every time, but I think that um, just how, how you would match it with the rest of the quote-unquote classical instruments and how, how it's used, I think maybe it, it's it's trying to be used as danger or, or, or uneasy elements. Hmm. I'm trying to remember Diamonds Are Forever Now. And if we get any of it, we're gonna. I'm gonna have to go back and do that. That's a great score as well. We're gonna have to go back and have a listen to that because that would be Barry's next assignment. And I'd like to kind of remind myself just how much electronic work there is in it. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there is a bit of choral work, but I'm thinking guys where you know we've got um, Slumber and Company. Yeah, yeah I wonder if we've yeah. got anything going on there. Anyway, okay, so we've got we got this mind control thing, which is really perfect for what's going on. The kind of dizzying, slow kind of spinny stuff right that that's just taking us into the psychos the psychosis of what blofeld's plot is uh let's just talk more generally about other highlights on on the other score just we got you know we want to close down our discussion soon so what other highlights jeff have you got that you really like this music for uh i liked um i mean i like the bob set uh, mm. Bobsled chase, and I, yeah, I, that's that's the good. Escape from Pistol the ski chase is good too. I mean, that, that, I mean, these are kind of you know these aren't in like chronological order, but I like. But they're all moments where the main title's used. Aren't well, they? yeah, actually, not yeah, just that. In, in the Piz Gloria thing, mm-hmm. that's the only sequence where we hear like the original kind of like Monty Norman with John Barry backup mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the uh, Bond theme in the movie. Because the rest of the time you hear the Bond theme, it's that right. yeah. version of it. It's the yeah. Moog version of it, right? And Barry wasn't happy with that. That was a production and direction point. I they they wanted the original Bond theme in there, and so they just took they just took it and planted it in there. Yeah. So I, I don't think Barry was like, you know, he wasn't fuming about it, but he was irritated that they, they wanted to use the original one instead of, or, you know, one that he had put together for the film. Yeah. When the grenade, when Blofeld drops a grenade, right? That's when you get that sort of boing, boing thing that starts coming through the Moog too, which is kind of like the danger now has been turned onto him because he's the guy yeah. who could go skyward with Let it. Let me just pull it up here. Boing, boing. But it's kind of like, it reminded me, it reminded me of Bernard Herrmann's shower scene in Psycho, and I'm sure it reminded <laughs> yeah, lots yeah. of people of that. You got that frantic yeah. sort of invasive synth stabbing, well, which yeah, is not, that's what, I know that. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of a 70s slasher film. Springy jump, I guess we could call it a springy yes. jump. Uh, it's 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 a very moderately scored part. Uh, you get that like that stringy part, that tension part that you mentioned, and that's the, the second time you hear it. And it's the same it's the same bit of music, you know, like dun 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 dun. Mm-hmm. dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. When, you know what I mean? Like when uh, when when they're fighting over the bobsled or whatever. When this, this that's after cool. Bond has been uh, thrown off, and then he jumps onto onto Blofeld's, and mm-hmm. in, in the last part of the sequence before Blofeld gets branched off, right? Mm-hmm. What about the sneaking around Piz Gloria stuff? Like that's one of the highlights for me of the score. I love the that track Sir Hillary's Night Out uh, <laughs> on on the score. I think that's really really great, and it contains an additional theme that Barry wrote 
Who Will Buy My Yesterdays. That was written for his tryst with Ruby. That who Will cool. Buy My Yesterdays, yeah. Who Will Buy My uh, Yesterdays. Do you know that there's a... I'm not going to play it, but... Um, people can check it out themselves it's just a short moment in but I, I like the way the music grows in that particular track and I love the music that Barry gives for him creeping around Piz Gloria it's really really fun it, it's good too but I like how like you know that in that superficial kind of like corny music kind of develops mm-hmm. into that afterwards where it becomes mm-hmm. more of an investigation that's right and yeah, then you don't yeah. really take that porny music seriously because you know that he's on assignment right yeah um yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a great track uh we talked about Gumball we talked about I mean, yeah, we have the Piz Gloria sequence. I mean, that mm-hmm. uses the traditional Bond theme. It's really great. Uh, that one's well done. So let's talk about, I think, like, at the very end of the music, like, mm-hmm. at the, end, the very end of the film. So okay. it ends with um, Tracy's death, obviously, and then the credits go, and you hear that synthesizer version of mm-hmm. the Bond theme that you would get uh, at the beginning of the movie. That's right. Uh, the gun barrel sequence. But the orchestration of the theme at the end of the film, is it's excellent. It elevates the scene, and it... Yeah it does emotionally hit, doesn't it? I mean, whether you're a Bond fan or not, this is a, this is a, a very uh, touching scene at the end well, of the film. Yeah, it's, so for, it's so forlorn and like, just mm-hmm. like the lost, you know, especially after that line that Diana Rigg delivers so well, you know, like, mm-hmm. and more importantly, a future, you know, you're just like, mm-hmm. oh man, you know what I mean? And yeah. and this is where the movie's been getting the whole time is how, how, it, how, that, how it eventually develops that so confident, you know, when you first hear it, yeah. And then all of a sudden, by the end of the movie, it's so muted, you know, and forlorn. Well, we've spoken about the love theme. We've spoken about the little themes in the film. We talked about the the big main title. And we've obviously done a big introduction and explanation of the Moog. I, I wonder, guys, in closing our discussion, if we could maybe just start to try to understand why this film score is so revered. I mean, if I asked the question, is this the best James Bond score? I would probably say yes. I think this yes. is the best James Bond at, score. At this point, I would probably agree with you. It's yeah. it's yeah, not necessarily gold. my favorite, but I do feel as though it is the best that suits the picture, and it yes. is definitely the most ambitious in terms yes. of what, what oh, Barry yeah. was working with. Also the most yeah. emo- emotionally strong, too, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, yeah. Goldfinger is a great score. Don't get me wrong. It really is. Like, there's some amazing jazz, jazz sequence with Barry does in that movie. It's fantastic. Uh, but there's but there's no emotional underpinning, you know? And, and I think that really makes a big difference in a score. It's how you feel when mm. you listen to the music. You know what I mean? So why well, do you... It's all those factors put together is what this mm-hmm. is. So yeah, why do you think, is. Jeff, like, why do you think this score is upheld as it is? Is it just because of the reasons and the deconstruction we've already done, or More is there something else? Is, is it is it also benefiting off the goodwill of the films resurfacing to the high ranks? Well, I, again, I think a lot of it is what we've already covered. You know, having a, a brand new Bond, uh, mm-hmm. using a brand new instrument, the, uh, the the heaviness of what mm-hmm. happens in this film with Bond getting married and then losing his wife, and obviously how that plays out with the rest of the films. Not that we know that at this point, is that it's it's very uh, it's very important, and and how the music. Uh, it shapes this film in so many different it has so many different layers. It's like an onion, if you will. I, I think that in all the different types of scenes, the music plays such an important role. Now, you could say that for any score, and that's the point of the score is course, to really yeah. help help you know uh, push forward you know uh, the feeling or or uh, the intent of what's going on in the scene but it, with this film i think and obviously looking at it afterwards 50 years later is that it's important to see just how 
how important the score was uh, and how it influenced a lot of people. Um, this was a very well-spiced and simmered chili. All the ingredients were there. The time was the time uh, spent to cook it. Uh, all of the, you know, the, the preparation, it was all perfectly well done. And the end product was something that they were able to serve, even though regardless of if you didn't get all, all of the patrons to come and, and buy it, it was still a very, <laughs> oh, very... That's true, yeah. Not, the restaurant might not have been full, but... That, that being said, the people that liked it liked it a lot. Yeah. 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 And the waiter that, that, that served it might have, you know, been a bit, a bit, a bit arrogant, you know what I yeah. mean? Uh-huh. But, uh... Yeah. So maybe you, didn't, maybe you didn't tip the waiter, but, you know... <laughs> you did go away with a good taste. You did go yeah. with a good taste. Well, Josh, what about you? Same question. Why do you think Honor Majesty's Secret Service has remained uh, or is, is regaled as, as such a wonderful score? I mean, apart from or perhaps because of the things we've spoke? Well, definitely from the things we spoke. Uh, the experimentation is a big thing. I think that allowed mm-hmm. Barry to experiment uh, and try different angles. Uh, they also, I think, wanted to conv- they wanted to bring Bond back to basics. So I really think as well that bringing on uh, Ian Fleming's novel to life as they mm-hmm. did, I think that was a big factor in the score being that made as well because I think John Barry knew uh, what a tragedy and what a great book on Her Majesty's Secret Service was yeah. that I think he wanted to make a, a score worthy of it. You know what I mean? So yeah. I feel I feel all that energy in terms of the production, in terms of this. Of, of, I'm talking about the music, of course. Yeah. Uh, everyone that was working on on this project, I think, was very passionate about it, and because I, I think a lot of them were probably. It's, I think it's the first example. I one of the early examples I think of like, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, a, of a brand name or some sort of like uh, fictional universe, mm-hmm. and someone wanted to bring it to life. You know, something that is similar to like uh, John Williams did for Star Wars, or what Howard Shore did for like The Lord of the uh-huh. Rings example it's someone who wanted to raise up the story being told mm-hmm. cinematically uh musically as well mm-hmm. and that's why i think our magic secret service uh it, it stands out among all the other bond scores uh mm-hmm. because i think it's the most it, it makes you emotionally yeah it does it, yeah. it, it, it does. does and it also yeah. it makes you feel different things all the way through mm-hmm. And, yeah. it, and it makes you feel those things outside of the movie itself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I think you can listen to this album and get get feels, can't you? You can. Exactly. You can. And, yeah. and that's how the music is designed. You know, how like you, you feel like this love theme all, all the time in the world. It appears in the score as it builds up. And then eventually you feel how it becomes a tragedy by the end of it. Just not just in terms of the visuals on the screen, but also just if you just trace, you know, the evolution of that theme throughout the movie until its bitter end. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with both yeah. you guys. I, I would just probably also say, you know, that the film itself, because it's so expertly directed and edited, and yeah. the, the sets are wonderful, the locations, we we linger in them. The film, to me, set at Christmas, is a bit of a decoration in darkness. You know, you got you got a lot of yes. bright lights in darkness, and the colors and the splashes and the contrasts, both in the soundtrack and on the screen. I think part of the reason the score stands out is not necessarily musical, but maybe because of the expert backdrop and the palette of the film. Like, I and do the, think the, the partnership. The counterpoint, yeah. Yeah, the partnership That's here good. between the film and the music, the senses, they're heightened in the dark, aren't they? I mean, you turn off yes. the lights, your senses are heightened. And yes. especially in quiet places. And this film has got a lot of quiet places and it breathes and the music breathes. Broods, broods yeah, like, in a way. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, we, we talked about Gumball Safe, but if you think about the way the Moog is used there, you've almost got, got like like a like a heartbeat or a breathing apparatus there that's going on. Like there yeah. there is a real life to this score and to this film, yes. and I, maybe it's it's a bit naff to try to describe it this way, you know, analogy wise. But I do feel like it is kind of organic. It's got this life to it that there's that a does patience move. to it also mm. too. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't right. doesn't rush itself, and I feel like it's got it's got good pace and music. Yeah. Is very well, guys. It's been really fun talking the music of this film through with you, yes. and we hope if you know, we hope you've enjoyed coming along this with us for the last couple of hours. And we uh, maybe yeah, we don't have all the are, time in the world, unfortunately. We do not have all the time in the world. Your opinions may be similar to ours, different to ours, but we came into this loving the score, loving the film, and we're exiting with exactly the same passion. I'm, I'm sure. Now, mm-hmm. I did mention at the outset, guys, that uh, there's going to be a little bit of a draw, a little bit of a an opportunity to win some Bond by Numbers swag. Mm. Uh, so we do have a couple of mugs available with uh, our beautiful logo and uh, illustrated photos um, of, of your three hosts, <laughs> should you want that. Here's what, <laughs> here's what you need to do to get your hands on a Bond by Numbers mug, okay? Be the first one to send us an email with the answer to the following question. Name one of Jeff Chapman's <laughs> electronic album favorites if you can remember one of the albums or artists that jeff said he really liked that produced the electronic music back at the start of the show let us know or one of josh's or one of mine okay so either one of your hosts tell us what electronic music we liked and uh, we'll give you a mug is, is that fair do you think that's fair oh i that's think that's fair. Fair. that's fair or should we make it more difficult than that no, I, if they listen to our podcast, that's great. That's good enough for me. It's <laughs> good enough for you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Right. Cheers, buddy. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so with lots of stuff going on, we would like to thank you very much for listening to us and sticking with us. Um, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we certainly enjoy what we're doing. Thank you very much for your uh, your chats and all of your support on socials and through emails and comments. Keep that coming. We love interacting with you. Let us know what you think of this or indeed any of the Bond scores. This is our first deep dive into a Bond score, but we're going to do more in the future. And next up, guys, in a few weeks' time, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about and give the full Bond by numbers treatment to Never Say Never Again. Yeah. Never Never, never say never again. (laughs) Jeff, we got to do it, Jeff. We're going to do it. And you're going to be with us, buddy. So I know. Directed by Urban Kirshner, who did Mm -hmm. The Empire Strikes Back. Just a couple of years before. So thanks again, everybody. Boys, hey, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure sitting down, chatting Bond with you. Uh, I look forward to our next soiree. (laughs) Yeah. Stay safe. Later. See ya.